citizens of the globe, welcome. Today we return to a subject that we explored much in the early days of our podcast and that we finally will revisit in depth for the next couple of years. Not only that, but we will zoom in on fascinating sub-threads of the greater theme in these episodes to come. But before I say anything else, have a listen to this. We all know William Shakespeare, the most famous author of all time, writer of 37 plays, 154 sonnets, several epic poems, and why we are here today. But what if I told you Shakespeare never wrote a single word. You are the soul of the age. None of your poems or your plays will ever carry your name. Promise me you'll keep our secret safe. 10,000 cells, all listening to the writings of one man, the ideas of one man. That's power, Robert! Since when did words ever win a kingdom, Edward? Leave that to me. My God. The Earl of Oxford does not write plays. If this is to be done, it must be done carefully, skillfully. In my world, one does not write plays. People like you do. Will Shakespeare. Congratulations. You've had an epic poem published today. Oh, uh, what? Do you mean like in, in a book? Mark my words, Edward has done this for a purpose. Words will prevail with a listener. I beg your pardon. If your lordship does not agree, then I shall be forced to make certain facts public. Will Shakespeare! Fraud! Charlatan! He came to me, Ben. He came to me. You could have been a king. Except for the fact that you were you. None of your plays will ever carry your name. None. A play, my lord. One you shall stage, Bankside. Stage? Under your name. My name, my lord? Well, I can't very well use my name, can I? I'm the 17th Earl of Oxford, the Lord Great Chamberlain of England, Viscount Bolbeck, Lord of Escales, Sanford and Battlesmere, etc., etc., etc. No. I have a reputation to protect. In my world, one does not write plays, Johnson. People like you do. I enjoyed your little comedy, Johnson. You have potential, great potential. 
Thank you, my lord. But it's politics that seem to have quite an effect on the tower. My father-in-law's men felt it quite seditious. Politics. My play has nothing to do with the politics. It, it, it's just a simple comedy. It showed your betters as fools who go through life barely managing to get food from plate to mouth for it, not for the cleverness of their servants. All art is political, Johnson, otherwise it would just be decoration. And all artists have something to say, otherwise they'd make shoes. And you are not a cobbler, are you, Johnson? When the whole bloody thing in verse. It's really not that difficult if you try. Oh, and have you ever tried? Oh. I'll have a little trouble parting the legs of barmaids after this performance, Ben. You cannot play Romeo. What? Why not? I'm perfect for the role. I'm perfect. I will not let that oaf Spencer have another go at one of my roles. No. Only Will Shakespeare can pump the life into Romeo's veins. And his cod piece. No. Ben. Ben, I'm an actor. Every inch of me. Down to my very toes. I, I want to... I crave. So bloody well act like a writer. And for God's sake, keep off the stage, will you? Writers do not have time to act. Majesty, I am told my Lord of Southampton has a gift for you. A gift? Are you the gift, my gracious little man? No, no, my most majestic majesty. I am a free man. My gift is a play. Play? Plays are the work of the devil. Born from a cesspool of plague, whoredom, thievery, fornication, and heresy. Comedy or tragedy? Comedy, majesty. Comedy? By whom? By Anonymous, your majesty. Anonymous? I so admire his verse. Listen to this. Will Shakespeare of Stratford was not a member of the upper classes. Everybody agrees on that. Then why did he write so obsessively about the aristocracy? about kings and queens and the life at court. And more importantly, how was he so familiar with their ways? Just take a look at Ben Johnson, also a commoner. His plays pretty much reflect the perspective of the working man. With Shakespeare, it's just the opposite. He apparently mocks his peers by giving them silly names like Bottom, Dull or Mistress Overdone. Was Shakespeare a traitor to his own class? No way. Check this one out. The only handwriting we have of William Shakespeare are actually six shaky and inconsistent signatures, all on legal documents. It seems that the poor man had difficulties signing his own name. But let's compare him to his colleagues, Kit Marlowe, Francis Bacon, and Ben Johnson. I think true penmanship. Isn't it hard to believe that William Shakespeare had so little experience with a quill? Now, I believe writing comes from the heart. So I'm asking myself, why doesn't a single play or poem by William Shakespeare reflect the life of the man from Stratford? For example, Shakespeare pours his heart out in his sonnets, but never mentions the death of his 11-year-old son. On the other hand, Ben Johnson wrote a beautiful poem when his child died. Or think about Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn. Or in our times, John Lennon wrote his song Julia about his mother. Call me a romantic, but I believe that great artists are inspired by their life. 
but obviously not the man from Stratford. Here is a big one for me. We know that William Shakespeare retired in his late 40s and returned to the same little town where he grew up. There, he never wrote a single poem, play or sonnet again. I would never compare myself to Shakespeare, but for me, the idea of retiring from directing and moving back to my hometown and never to be associated with movies again is just completely unthinkable. So what happened? Did William Shakespeare run out of ideas? Hmm. No record shows that William Shakespeare of Stratford ever traveled beyond the borders of his home country, England. Yet Shakespeare's work references Italian cities in great detail, French court life, as well as etiquette and manners of the nobility in foreign lands. How did the author gain all this specific knowledge about countries he never visited? Let's remember, a third of William Shakespeare's plays are set in Italy. Must have watched the Travel Channel a lot. Can you believe that the last will of William Shakespeare of Stratford does not mention any books or manuscripts? Nothing that would indicate that he was the author of 36 plays, 154 sonnets and two famous poems. Didn't he care what would happen to his life's work after his death? In his testament, he obviously cared more for his second best bed that he famously left to his wife. Must have been a very comfortable mattress. Now, that was trailers, snippets and ads for the 2011 film Anonymous, directed by Roland Emmerich, whom you heard made some arguments at the end there. The movie depicts Sir Edward de Vere as the main culprit behind the Shakespearean authorship and suggests a few roles of involvement to famous suspects like Ben Jonson and affords a minor role to Will Shakespeare as a frontman and a mask. Of course, famously, the latter was born to illiterate parents and had illiterate children and somehow as a standalone in his lineage, and despite being surrounded by so much illiteracy, he miraculously rose as the most educated man in Britain, being expert on innumerable subjects from medicine to astronomy. I mean, you would think he would let his children read these famous and celebrated plays he allegedly authored, but no. However, there is no proof even for his own literacy. Stratfordian dogmatists claim he went to grammar school, which is just assertion with no records or documentation to back that up. But even if it was true, it was an impressive rural grammar school, considering that the Shakespeare writings has the largest vocabulary in English literature to this day. Yet no writing has been found from Shakespeare, despite that he was dividing his time between London and Stratford. You would think he at least wanted to correspond during these separations, but no, there's nothing. No trace of his learning or any, of any writing, save a few attempts to sign his name. And weirdly, even if he was the author, he never wrote a single word after his retirement. Nothing adds up, and as a final nail in this fake Stratford coffin is the book Shakespeare Suppressed, The Uncensored Truth About Shakespeare and His Works, by independent scholar Catherine Chiljan, who is our guest.
guest tonight. She agrees with the movie Anonymous that the most likely author was De Vere and will argue for that case. But first, let us get to know her. She was a graduate of UCLA, where she studied history for six years from 79 to 84. Her day job the last 26 years has been in the diamond business, working for the high-end retailer of fine jewelry, Durko Jewelers in San Francisco. She's been pursuing the authorship question for more than 35 years. After having realized that Shakespeare of Stratford could not be the source of the authorship, she, as a lover of history, started reading everything she could about it. Just for the book, she spent seven years of research and has created the website shakespearesuppressed.com that provides valuable info about her ongoing work and publications. Her book earned her the Vero Nihil Verius Award for Distinguished Scholarship, which she received at Concordia University in 2012 during the Shakespeare Authorship Studies Conference. Children sits on the board of directors for the Shakespeare Authorship Coalition, who runs the popular website and go-to resource, doubtaboutwill.org, and she holds the position as their treasurer. She's a former trustee of the Shakespeare Oxford Society and has served as editor of the Shakespeare Oxford Newsletter, where she obviously has contributed many articles, and is currently on the Research Grant Committee for the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship. She is also editor of the books Letters and Poems of Edward, Earl of Oxford, and Dedication Letters to the Earl of Oxford. Furthermore, she is contributor to the anthology book Contested Year, Errors, Omissions and Unsupported Statements in James Shapiro's The Year of Lear, Shakespeare in 1606. And she has written numerous articles and academic papers for various publications like the Oxfordian, the Journal of Scientific Exploration and the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship. One research paper titled a portrait of Susan Bertie or Mary Vere, Shakespeare's sister, concerns a possible misattributed portrait of Lady Mary Vere, sister of Edward de Vere. Catherine was able to personally obtain the portrait in question, and the provenance of the painting strongly links it to families associated with de Vere. She has been an outspoken advocate for the Oxfordian view, uh, she's debated the subject with English professors at the Smithsonian Institution as well as the Mechanics Institute Library. She has given talks on the Shakespeare authorship question in numerous public libraries, clubs, universities and bookstores and discussed it on many, many podcasts, TV and radio, where I first became aware of her via a coast-to-coast interview. In her book, Shakespeare Suppressed, she examines the author's identity, presenting evidence that he was not Shakespeare. Freed from this model, problems of dating place, piracy and more can be solved, and a new, exciting figure of the author emerges. The book explores why Shakespeare was falsely credited as Shakespeare only after his death, but the implications of Chiljan's research extend much further and offer a fresh perspective on the most celebrated poet and dramatist in history.
Since the book resets the paradigm to ground zero rather than arguing for the Oxfordian theory, it will be interesting for all non-Stratfordians, and indeed even Stratfordians, as it is high time they wake up and smell the coffee. One more thing. To follow the discussion today, it is an advantage to be British with a basic education or a history geek, and if not, then to be familiar with the basic characters of the plot. I will therefore pre-introduce some names for you. Firstly, Edward de Vere, the man portrayed in the movie Anonymous as the real author, and his life will be discussed in this show. He lived from 1550 to 1604. Those believing he was the real author are called Oxfordians because de Vere was the seventh Earl of Oxford. In this show we lament that there's no codes in the Shakespeare manuscripts suggesting de Vere, as it famously is for other suspects. But upon further research, this is actually wrong and hopefully I will get on a relevant author in the future to elaborate on the De Vere codes. Next, we have Elizabeth Tudor, known as Queen Elizabeth I, born 1533, died 1603. She was Queen of England and Ireland from 58 until her death in 1603. She was the last monarch of the House of Tudor and was referred to as the Virgin Queen, and she was directly involved with the Shakespeare mystery. Another important player, if not so much today, than to the greater story is John Dee, lived from 1527 to 1609, was a mathematician, astronomer, astrologer, teacher, occultist, antiquarian, cryptographer and spymaster, actually with the code 007. He was court astronomer and advisor to Queen Elizabeth I and spent much of his time on magic, alchemy, divination and hermetic philosophy. He advocated the foundation of British colonies in the New World and is credited with the first to coining the term the British Empire. Then, of course, we have James Charles Stuart, 1566 to 1625, who was King of Scotland as James VI from 1567 and King of England and Ireland as James I from 1603, succeeding Elizabeth, until his death in 1625. Although he long tried to get both countries to adopt a closer political union, the kingdoms of Scotland and England remained individual sovereign states, both ruled by James in personal union. Obviously, we must mention the spider Francis Bacon, 1561-1626, first Viscount of St. Alban, and also known as Lord Verulam, who was a philosopher and statesman who served as Attorney General and Lord Chancellor under King James, whom he was close with, as his mentor John Dee had been with Queen Victoria. He led the advancement of both natural philosophy and the scientific method, and his works remained influential even in the late stages of the scientific revolution. He is suspected for being involved with, if not founding, the Rosicrucian project, and has a central role in the arc of our series called From Solomon's Temple to Arcadia. And we've had uh, shows about him in the past, exploring the Bacon Codes in Shakespeare, and we will have future shows portraying his super interesting life. Another important figure to be aware of today is William Cecil, first Baron Burley, 
born 1520, died 1598. He was a statesman and chief advisor of Queen Elizabeth for most of her reign, twice Secretary of State and Lord High Treasurer. He was regarded as the real power behind the throne and was somewhat of a suppressor. He is believed to have been against the Shakespearean project and was by marriage uncle to Francis Bacon and father-in-law to Edward de Vere. His son, Robert Cecil, 1st Earl of Salisbury, 1563-1612, was largely despised by Bacon, de Vere, and many others suspected to being involved in the Shakespeare project. He continued in his father, William Cecil's footsteps, and served as Secretary of State and Lord High Treasurer, remaining in power during the first nine years of King James' reign until his own death. Also noteworthy is Henry, oh, I don't know how to pronounce this, Ryothesley, 1573-1624, third Earl of Southampton, is best remembered today as patron of Shakespeare, the author, not a Stratford man. He was suspected to be the bastard son of Queen Elizabeth and Edward de Vere. He was patron to many Elizabethan poets and a significant figure in the cultural life of late 16th century England, and a popular figure at court, that is, until he was involved in the Essex Rebellion in 1601 with his close friend, the Earl of Essex, where they tried to topple the Queen and seize the power. He was thrown in jail and later freed by King James uh, after he took over. And finally, his friend and brother in arms during this rebellion was uh, Sir Henry Neville, 1564 to 1615. And I erratically called him of a younger generation in this show because I mistook his dates with his son of the same name. He was English courtier, politician and diplomat and another figure suspected to be involved in the Shakespeare project. Interestingly, quotes in the Shakespeare publications not only indicate Bacon, but also Neville, whom incidentally were related to each other through marriage. We will explore the Neville quotes in a future show. And with that, let's roll up the curtain and let the drama unfold. Welcome to Forum Borealis, Catherine. So good to be here. Good to have you. So good. You're the first, like I just told you, you're the first Oxfordian on our show. Yes. <laughs> A lot to live up to. <laughs> <laughs> And I've invited you on because you graciously sent me your book and and it's a solid piece of argument. We're going to get back to Thank it. Thank you. You know, I've always been open to De Vere. So it's good to get the straight Oxfordian take to spice up. We've had so many Baconians on. So, uh, but uh, my Baconians are pretty open-minded. For example, uh, you'd be hard-pressed to finding a Baconian who thinks it's just bacon. Oh. But rest assured, I'm not going to try to convert you because I, I don't know who, who's <laughs> behind. I'm open. And I do, I've always suspected that uh, De Vere had a hand in it too. I, I find it weird that they haven't, that the Baconian haven't included him because now they have a huge cast of, of players. Okay. And I love, of course, you know, always when I have people like this on, we always start, the, and we can do the same today, like the first half of the show, let's debunk the Stratfordian thing, and then we can start speculate who the real culprits are. Sure. 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, I always say this about because this is a classical conspiracy in the in the real meaning of the world, uh, because a conspiracy doesn't mean something sinister necessarily. So if we have a case where and it has to be more than just an author behind us, publishers, where we have a case where people collude to do something, it's per definition a conspiracy. And as with all conspiracies, it's easy enough to know who didn't do it, that people can, um, researchers can find out, etc. But it's always an extra mile to find out who did it. Yes. So, and that's why I think part one of our talk today is going to be a cakewalk. <laughs> because, you know, I know the arguments. But before we really uh, go into all that, let me start. Uh, people have heard about you now. So what on earth is a Shakespeare scholar doing all, all the way over in the land of, uh, I'm saying this with love, not insult, but the land of barbarians? You mean the San Francisco area? <laughs> well, I mean, actually everywhere but the San Francisco area. <laughs> well, I guess if there should be a Shakespeare scholar anywhere in America, it would be Frisco. <laughs> well, one of my predecessors was also in the 1930s, Eva Turner Clark. She wrote a great book. Yeah, that makes sense. In the 30s, you you lot were very cultural compared to today, I mean. <laughs> But uh, no, it is actually it is actually pretty interesting that you're American and you're so deep into it. Well, um, actually, I got into it when I was in Los Angeles, mm. wh- which is where I'm from. Um, when I saw on television uh, a debate between an English professor, I believe from Princeton, uh, debating uh, Charlton Ogburn, who you know said it's not the Stratford man it's the Earl of Oxford and uh, I knew nothing about it at this point um, I but I was a history major at UCLA so I had some interest um, at that point mm. and I saw an incredible discrepancy between the facts for the Stratford man which are basically non-existent versus um, the Earl of Oxford's case and um, so I from that point on I I I read Ogburn's book, it's The Mysterious William Shakespeare, and I started to do my own research. And it's just been a passion ever since, and we're talking of more than 35 years. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's a gold mine, and it's so exciting. There's so many plots and subplots and connections. But uh, you were uh, an um, Oxfordian from the outset then? Yes, Mm. Yes. Let's clear up some terms, by the way. Stratfordian, that means basically that you haven't looked into it. That means that you're just <laughs> buying the cover story that this brute Will Shakespeare actually authored these things. It's called Stratfordians because he was from, uh, what's it called, Stratford, uh, Stratford. Stratford-on-Avon or something? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Then you have the Baconians, where I'm coming from, which favor. There's two versions there. Either they favor Francis Bacon or... They favor, which is a more neo-Baconian thing, they favor a whole host of uh, people, uh, all are arranged and organized by Bacon. I, I belong to that faction. I think that's the most likely based on the evidence I've seen so far. Okay. Then you have the, what you are Oxford, we call it that due to the Earl of Oxford, Edward de Vere, who we're going to get more back to later in the show. And you have also some others, like you mentioned, Marlowe, Christopher Marlowe. There's some who, who think he was involved, and yes. there's some who think um, 
even John Dee was involved. So there's no lack of players here. But let's start by, you know, how can we be so sure that it wasn't this Bruteville Shakespeare who actually did it? Well, I don't want to call him a brute, but... Uh, <laughs> but uh, I have arguments. I, I can substantiate it. <laughs> yeah, he, he was a real person. Yeah. And he was born in the small town, well, I mean, fairly small town of Stratford-upon-Avon, which is north of London. And um, there is no, unfortunately, no lifetime evidence that connects him with education or with writing. And that's, you know, that's huge. Uh, The professor's case for the Stratford man is purely posthumous. Mm. uh, Evidence that occurred after his death. And, you know, that that really should not hold up for historians, that type of evidence. Mm. Um, We do have evidence that the Stratford man was involved in the theater, uh, that yeah. he, uh, in 1595, uh, 15, yeah, 95, when he was about 30 years old, he received payment along with two actors to, uh, for a performance before Queen Elizabeth. So it's not an indication that he was a writer. It's just that he was deputed to receive a, a payment along with writers, uh, with author. Uh, Sorry, actors, Mm. two actors. And that's the very first connection that we have between the Stratford man and the theater. But it's only in the sense of money. Now, um, three years previously, he apparently made a loan of six or seven pounds to somebody. And years later, he tried to reclaim that loan. So meaning his first presence in London in 1592 was as a moneylender. Yeah. And then you get the second reference where he's deputed deputed to receive a payment. Again, it's money related. I think that he was actually a moneylender, a financier of theatrical companies. And of course, there is facts that he was a theater shareholder for the Globe Theater and for the Black Friars Theater. Hmm. And also he was listed as a member of the King's Men Acting Company in 1603. So there's definite involvement with the Stratford Man and the theater, but it's not necessarily as a writer because we don't have any of his writings. Hmm. Yeah. It's, it's completely blank. Yeah, yeah many people uh, do uh, regard him as an actor, but, but it's obvious that he frequented those circles because when they had to hire a, um, what's it called? Uh, um, not a patsy, but like a, uh, a cover man, a straw man. I don't know the English word for it, but they needed a face, a mask, right? <laughs> and then obviously they had to pick someone in their sphere. They wouldn't just take a random stranger from the street. So it's interesting that he is connected on the money because uh, who would risk doing something like that? Well, it would be someone with the love of money, of course. But uh, because I don't think it was without risk. Because uh, like you probably explained to us, there was a reason they had to. You you couldn't just come out in the open with these things. Uh, It was uh, a very special era in terms of information and theater that was like um, that, that wasn't a completely house clean 
But I, I also think that the powers that be knew it wasn't him. Otherwise, they would have seized him long ago. Right. I mean, they were, like I think you argue it in your book, but people always make a big deal out of the fact that when he died, he, nobody mourned him, <laughs> nobody cared, nobody ever connected him with Shakespeare until much later, like you, you just said. Yes. Yes. Well, really, um, what it was is there were two William Shakespeare's um, in the 1590s. You know, you have somebody using a pen name, who, of course, I believe was the Earl of Oxford. And then you have this man who was born William Shakespeare, actually was pronounced Shakespeare, if you look at the existing documents, uh, who was involved in the theater in a financial way. Mm. Um, and for some reason, I, I guess uh, professors just can't get their wrap their head around that. Even though when you have two writers named poets named John Davies, who they always still they mix up. They don't know which Don, John Davies is a certain John Davies. <laughs> so, I mean, if there can be two John Davies who are authors at the same time, there could be two William Shakespeare's. Right, right. Uh, one being a pen name, of course. So. Yeah, but do you you don't think um, they deliberately involved him? You think he was just uh, accidentally in in this sphere? I think maybe initially it was accidental, but um, I think that it was later where where they actually where the powers that be used his uh, him as a cover. Mm. They, that, and that's where we come to the first folio. Um, which tried to give the impression that Shakespeare was a man born with that name and mm. born from Stratford-on-Avon. Um, right. I don't know if we want to get into that yet, but... Well, I mean, uh, we, we only have so much time, so I guess we could. Uh, I, I'll be happy to discuss anything debunking uh, Shakespeare at this point of, of the talk. <laughs> Right. Well, I mean, if we can briefly go that there's no um, evidence that he was had any education whatsoever. Mm. Uh, we don't have any manuscripts, uh, no letters with his handwriting. We don't have any payments to him as an actor or a writer. Mm. Um, we don't have any queen, uh, uh, known encounters between him and the queen or King James, who succeeded the queen. Mm. Um, and as you mentioned, there was uh, no notice of his death when he died in 1616. And as I understand it, he wasn't even abroad. And yes, correct. Uh, as far as we know, he never left England. Hmm. But if you look at the works, they're extremely learned. Uh, he, he certainly had knowledge of Italy. He describes uh, kind of innocuous places in Italy. Um, the real author, you mean, yeah. The, yeah, in the in the plays, hmm. in the in works, like for example, in um, Romeo and Juliet, um, someone someone's looking for Romeo, and they say, "Oh, I, I saw him near a tree, uh, near near a sycamore tree at the western wall of Verona." Hmm. Right. Well, um, a, a great book was written by Richard Rowe, the Shakespeare Guide to Italy, and he he went about. He read all the Italian plays and he went about finding locations mentioned in the works, you know, things out of the way, not not the famous ones, the non-famous ones. Mm. And he, he went to Verona at the Western Wall. And sure enough, there were sycamore trees there. So that's the ty type of detail mm. the great author knew. Mm. So um, uh, among uh, knowing the Italian language and knowing um 
Italian works of literature that several of the plays were based upon. Mm. So, um, yeah. Yeah, notwithstanding that um, the author or authors obviously were super educated, they had access to information that, you know, libraries of knowledge and history and all these things that just an average uh, stooge couldn't at that time. Yeah, Sorry, even the universities had limited. I read that, for example, John Dee had... uh, how many works did he have? He had the best library of the time in England. His library had 4,000 books and manuscripts, which were yes. very exclusive. Whereas in Cambridge and Oxford, <laughs> they had less than 500. <laughs> oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, wow. yeah the great author, he, he knew law. And they were law schools back then. And there's no William Shakespeare in their records, which have survived. Um, he, he knew music. He knew medicine over, I think, over 700 medical terms. He knew military philosophy uh, terms, philosophy, uh, sports of the aristocracy like tennis and falconry. Mm. Um, he was a super educated person. He, he knew rhetoric, and that was only taught at the university. He knew ancient Greek. Hmm. Uh, it, it, the list goes on and on. So this person didn't leave any footprint, no William Shakespeare in any sort of academic uh, area. Um, and, and as far as we know, he was not uh, given any sort of scholarship or something. Hmm. So, I mean, it's it's not to say it's impossible that someone who came from an illiterate family couldn't become educated, but uh, there's just no trace of him whatsoever. Yeah, I, I would say that uh, even just a single man being behind all, all the stuff uh, contributed to Shakespeare is a stretch. I mean, what multi-genius are we talking about here? No wonder there's so few serious candidates. But I think even they will fall short in some era, areas, which is... This isn't the only reason I favor the the group project uh, theory, but this is like an extra evidence for it. Uh But be that as it may, we're going to speculate about that later. Um, I think values is something to look at, too, because when I call him a brute, uh, the Shakespeare guy, it's to do with how he was treating people. And it goes straight against, you know, basic values that are, are permeating the Shakespearean play, for example, the quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven. Yes. I mean, someone who was uh, prosecuting, uh, uh, first of all, he was avoiding taxes, which I guess some will say that's a sympathetic trait. (laughs) (laughs) But he was very greedy. And he was prosecuting for hoarding grain and price goaching the locals during a famine. I mean, come on. for grain, yes. Yeah, and like you said, he sued his neighbors for mere shillings and pence. Yes, uh, it, does, it doesn't quite square with um, the, the author who said, uh, he who steals, my tra- uh, steals money steals trash, or steals my purse steals trash. So, mm, mm. Yeah. Uh, now, in your book, which uh, is called uh, Shakespeare Suppressed, the subtitle The Uncensored Truth About Shakespeare and His Works, and of course, it's De Vere on the front page. Now, yes, you have um, divided it into five parts and one great list of appendices. But part one is called Shakespeare, Greatness and Great Problems. 
Could you give a gist of that part of your book? What is it that you're referring to? Well, just as I mentioned before, the the total lack of uh, lifetime evidence mm. that the great author was a Stratford man. And there's holes, holes in the historical record. And also, uh, I get into the problem of play piracy. Mm. Um, now, if you want to believe the, the professor um, in his story that the Stratford man came to London to make his fortune and, you know, by writing. But you have so many instances of plays being pirated. And that doesn't make sense because if you're out to make money, you're going to you're going to give your manuscript to whatever printer wants to pay for it. Mm, right. Mm. Um, but that was not the case. The great all of I would say uh, 95% of what we have in the Shakespeare plays are imperfect to okay to bad. In fact, they use these terms, good quartos and bad quartos. So uh, the author was not giving his manuscript to printers. They, the printers probably were paying people to sit into public performances of the play and write it down as best they could. Oh. And they had stenog they had stenography back then. There were four books of stenography written in the in the up until sixteen hundred. Wait a minute, this is super interesting. This is news to me. So you're saying that there was no official? What, what about the so-called first folio? Yes, um, the first folio was uh, thirty-six Shakespeare plays uh, printed on large folio-sized paper. And um, yes, about 20 Shakespeare plays were there for the first time, but they're not in, in perfect condition. They're in imperfect condition. Um, like, for example, Hamlet is different than the first edition and the second edition, quarto editions. So when the folio came out, that was different, too. And there's no regularity how they're different. Macbeth is was the first time published in the folio, and it's considered a very short tragedy, the shortest of all his tragedies, uh, indicating it may have been shortened. Mm. About 16 Shakespeare plays uh, were printed before the folio, and several of those, including bad quartos, were used in the folio. So I argue mm. that none of the author's originals were in the first folio. I don't think we've ever even seen the originals. I think they're Hopefully they're hidden somewhere, and one day they will be found. Um, ah, that's but, what you're referring to in part three, uh, the first folio fraud, right? Yeah, well, yes. Yeah, yes. I haven't read that part of the book. It's a fraud, but, but also the opening pages. But yeah, I mean, the, the folio tells us that we have published the plays according to the two original copies, and that was truly false. I mean, no, no scholar will tell you that's the case because it, it is filled with imperfections. Hmm. So, so, but you, you don't think, because look, if there was an author or a band of authors and uh, they never published these officially, could there be leaks or do you attribute everything to people sitting in on the place and, and noting down? Well, I think that you know, some acting companies had the, some plays, but they may not have had the full version. Um, some of these 
plays may have been an amalgam of separate parts that were put together, actors' parts mm. that were uh, you know knitted together. Um, they they may have had the f- fairly full plays, but maybe not the original. Mm. I don't know. It, it's hard to say, but I think that every Shakespeare scholar will tell you that every play is somehow imperfect. In fact, what we're reading today, if you pick up a book of Hamlet today or Romeo and Juliet, um, you're looking at an, an edition of two or three hundred years of scholarship added to it. Mm. So, like, for example, the first edition of Romeo and Juliet is so bad that people in Shakespeare's lifetime called it a monstrous theft. <laughs> it was unreadable and you could not read it. You could not read that today. You can go to the British Library website. You can take a look at Romeo and Juliet, the first quarto, and you're going to have a hard time understanding what's going on. So, Was that a part of the first folio? Um, no, it was uh, subsequently better editions came out. So, mm. yeah. But the very first one was really terrible. And same with Pericles, which came out in 1609. Mm. Um, that, that also was really bad. So um, this is evidence of piracy. And also The Passionate Pilgrim, which was a a poetry work by William Shakespeare, was also uh, considered a piracy. It was later written by a a writer named Haywood, called it a piracy. Mm. So uh, this was going on. So what is the profile of an author who who allows his works to be pirated without complaining? Mm. And to me, that tells us an or, or, or to or to clean up the mess by issuing his public his uh, version of the originals. But I don't think he did. That's it. No, because uh, no, right? But you say you don't think. I mean, isn't that something we know? Could it have been published without anyone knowing? Could it have been lost? I don't think so. Or shouldn't it be references to it at least? References to what? I'm sorry. To like. Let's say uh, the people or the guy behind uh, the author, the Shakespeare author. Like, like what I understood is that it has never been official. Like people are looking for where are the original Shakespeare? Like that's the yes. thing. Where is it? Right. Because it's never been yes. brought out to the public. Right. Right. And we would know it if it, it, it is not a case of it could have been published. And there were so few copies that uh, it just... Uh, disappeared at the, in in the trail of time, right? That that's not the case, right? I don't think so. No, no. I don't think so. I think that um, the plays were so popular mm. that people wanted to read them, and the printers knew this, and so they, you know, found ways to try and get copies. And probably they also knew that he was somebody who uh, who had high rank, who didn't want them to be published. So they they knew that. That he couldn't complain if they did do it, mm, mm. which was also the case. And I think maybe even they used the Stratford man as uh, their cover. Like if they say, "Where did you get this copy?" and they would point to him, <laughs> mm. you know, something like that. It, it could have been. So why didn't they uh, arrest uh, Will Shakespeare then? Because they knew it wasn't him, right? Yes. Yes, and, and while we're at it, explain to people why that's why it's such a big deal. Why couldn't they just publish it or publish it on even, uh, let alone under their own name, etc.? Why? What's the big deal? Well, uh, the the great author, of course, in my opinion, was a nobleman, mm. and 
or or it was true of anyone who was highly ranked or connected to the court. Um, you don't publish with your own name on it, and and simply you don't publish at all uh, your creative writing because that would be considered like you're 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 writing for money, and that would really um, degrade your your name, your family name. So it was a social code that nobility did not publish, and they also didn't advertise that they were interested in quote-unquote frivolous activity, fantastical activity like writing plays or poems. That this was, is limited to fiction, right? Not to treatises. Well, yeah, even even that. Often treatises were not published under uh, a person's name, hmm. maybe initials or something like that. Hmm. But yeah, if we're talking for sure about fiction and, and drama and poetry, yes. Um, it was just something that the nobility didn't do. And also they didn't want to be praised for it. And we have instances of contemporaries saying to quote unquote Shakespeare, not, not directly saying his name, that uh, to praise you would stain your name. So they hesitated to make that connection, knowing it was his will. However, after he died, it would have been perfectly acceptable for someone of the nobility to have his works printed with his name on it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and a great example is Sir Philip Sidney. He was a courtier poet, and uh, when he died, uh, his works were published with his name on it. In fact, his own sister, who was a countess, the Countess of Pembroke, published his Arcadia. So it should have happened, but in, in the case of the great Shakespeare, it didn't happen. And um, that's one of the great Shakespeare mysteries, is why he gets yeah. a true credit. But isn't there also a political aspect? Um, I know... Um Many Baconians talk about this, that there was like a, a risk. Uh, it was very turbulent times, politically speaking. And I think, you know, the movie Anonymous, which, by the way, yes, yes I, I advise everyone to, to watch it. Yes. Uh, there, they made a big deal of one of the plays connected to some kind of insurrection. Yes, they didn't say that it was Richard II, but it, but that's what was the one that um, was used uh, just before the Earl of Essex's uh, attempt, attempted coup d'etat against Queen Elizabeth. Hmm. It was Shakespeare's play. And um, the it failed. Okay, the coup d'etat failed. And uh, Southampton and, uh, and the Earl of Essex were imprisoned. And they questioned the actors of the who put on the play, Richard II, the night before this uh, insurrection. And there was no call, however, for the author of the work to be <laughs> questioned. Hmm. So that's, uh, again, another strange thing. And it, it indicates royal protection. He was known. Hmm. He was known in the royal court. And this play by then was quite old. So they knew that it had nothing to do with the current insurrection. <laughs> um, but yes, when you say that the plays can, were politically, they yes, um, very important people were lampooned in them. Like, for example, um, Sir William Cecil, he was later uh, ennobled uh, as Lord Burley. 
he was yeah uh, hang on i have to virginia say that he's he's the bad guy in the movie anonymous <laughs> right yeah yeah he he was the queen's top counselor really he was pretty much the power behind the throne D- did he take over after john d um no he was her counselor from the very beginning mm, okay yeah and um anyway in hamlet he is satirized as the king's counselor polonius mm. and it's not a flattering portrayal mm. and um there are very, several clues to indicate that it it was uh sir william cecil lord burley for example in the first edition of hamlet polonius's name was actually corambus which means <clears throat> double-hearted mm. uh, lord burley's motto on his coat of arms was one heart one way mm. so this this is a definite parody um on and and after in the second edition of hamlet the name was changed to polonius so that you know that's not do you know if if shakespeare scholars stratfordians accept that reference i i think they do interesting um, and cer- certainly historians do because they pointed it out over a hundred years ago interesting so. see this is the hypocrisy of of the academicians because yeah these what you just gave an example of are inferior references and codes if you like compared to some of the real juicy codes uh, that is found in uh, Shakespearean place and um, of course stegonography uh, which was big back in the day then yeah. uh, is also permeating especially the first folio which is interesting then that you say the first folio may even itself have been a pirated publication because that means that the people who issued it may have just taken these manuscripts seized upon them and you know arranged the letters and the sentences in a way that they so that they could convey their geometry and their codes. Oh, you're right. Uh, which I find that tremendously interesting. But I also find it interesting that they then, okay, we accept that this is a metaphor for Cecil, but we don't accept all the even better stuff that you guys have found that <laughs> debunks. Uh, right, you know, right. You see what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. But and also people during the, those that time connected Richard the mm-hmm. Third, which was a total villain, mm-hmm. uh, with uh, William Cecil's son Robert Cecil, mm. who took over his father's power uh, when his father died, and so that's kind of another reason why um, they wanted to the powers that be cover up uh, the idea that the great author was a nobleman, somebody connected to the court, because otherwise you wouldn't notice these illusions, right? If it Mm. were the Stratford man, he had no access to these people. How is he going to know Mm. um, about Burley, et cetera, you know? So So basically your first four chapters deals with deconstructing the official narrative, right? And then I would say... The last, the two last chapters deal with um, Devere. Is it so? Is that how you made the book up? Well, you know, I I state from the outset that I believe the seventeenth Earl of Oxford was the great author, mm. but I don't go into his case. I I mostly I just focus on 
the Stratford man, that it to get rid of the Stratford man's. Mm. And I, I think that once that's clear, then the world can really start looking at right. who he really was and start to be on the right track in sh- Shakespeare's scholarship. So mm. that was the point. But you do make many good arguments for Oxford in this book. I've seen, I've seen several things that I didn't know because uh, I, I've been weak on the wear. So that's uh, one of the things that uh, I liked in this book that you gave some. You made you made some good arguments for it. Wonderful. But when we go to the movie Anonymous, I guess they took some liberties there. Uh, for example, they. Um, Made they made some uh, uh, statements there that maybe not completely. Uh, I mean, some artistic license. But for example, they speculate about relationships. Yeah. And you know what? I think we need to start talking about the Queen. I think she's uh, a little important here, no matter who wrote it. Yes. Because uh, there is this power battle. The Cecils, for example, they were favoring that her successor should be King James. Isn't that true? Um, well. Or is that speculation? No, it's true. The Cecils, well, at first they wanted Arbella Stewart, who was a cousin of James, who later became James I. But uh, then uh, the Earl of Essex kind of uh, let the cat out of the bag uh, that he was trying for her. And so he changed. And um, then he went toward James I, who did get the throne. So what was the problem for Queen Elizabeth? Uh, why couldn't she just appoint a successor? She she never would. And she, she kind of got trapped in her own success as the Virgin Queen. That concept really took over the populace. And they kind I think they initially did it to, you know, liken her to Mary, the mother of Jesus, mm. the Virgin Queen. As a propaganda tool. Propaganda because they had, um, you know, her father, Henry VIII, had uh, divorced himself from Catholicism and started his own Church of England. So I think that was part of it. But um, it it appears that the Queen really was not virginal, <laughs> that she actually had numerous affairs. In fact, uh, one of them was with Uh, the Earl of Oxford in in one case. Um, It was known for many years, in fact, uh, that Robert uh, Dudley, later the Earl of Leicester, that she had a long time affair with him. In fact, um, early in her reign, they were trying to get permission to marry, or at least Dudley was, um, to marry the queen. So um, I think that she actually had children. And I think that in in the end, the authorship question may be related to the yeah. succession issue. Yeah, that's what I think. Now, uh, I think uh, Anonymous is, is not just a reference to the Shakespeare authorship. I think it's also a reference to her, her bastards. Isn't that how they were re- referenced as Anonymous? Her diff- the different sons she had with people. Um, yes, I mean, they, they would be bastards uh, because she never married, as far as we know. Mm. But, um, you know, it's still speculative if she had children. That, that's what I thought. So when they speculate that... So they were taking license, yes. Yes, they, they, I guess we can. I mean, it's an old movie. I, I guess we can come out and say that they speculate that Oxford himself, Edward de Vere, had an affair 
more than an affair, that he had a long relationship with the Queen and that yes. they fathered uh, one of these um, noblemen, I forgot his name. But that's, that, is that licensed or is that an official law among um, Oxfordians? Well, um, a certain faction of Oxfordians believe this because this story is told in the Shakespeare sonnets, hmm. which were 154 poems, right, uh, written mostly in the first person. So he was writing about himself and his loves. And one of his loves was uh, a, a beautiful young man. And I I would say it's almost unanimous that uh, scholars believe he was the third Earl of Southampton, Henry Rosely. And he lauds this young man to the hilt. And, and also in princely terms, in royal terms. And in fact, one of the sonnets, um, it appears to be the Earl of Oxford's motto, Southampton's motto, and the Queen Elizabeth's motto in one line. Mm. And um, the, Earl of, uh, the Earl of Southampton was considered a prince, actually, um, while he was alive. So there are some, you know, indications that this may have been the case. And certainly, I believe the great author thought so. Mm. So, so, so when they cracked down, they, they did close down theater plays of Shakespeare, didn't they? In the movie, it's, it's uh, the Cecils that are doing it. Yeah, they, they did usually um, un, under cover of the plague. Mm. Whether, that, whether it was actually political, it's hard to say. But. Or, or I was thinking religious because the Cecils are hard Protestants, right? I believe so. Yes. Yeah, because I'm trying to get to the politics here and the religion politics. Because Queen Elizabeth, she was also a Protestant, and uh, uh, like you said, she was elevated to the Virgin Queen after they beat the Spanish Armada. Uh, the Spaniards lost thousands of ships and men. And the Brits, almost nobody. And many think it's uh, John Dee had a hand in this. <laughs> yeah. And after that, you know, her reign was secure and, and she became this larger than life character that they needed to keep the empire together. Now, what was the, such a big deal with... Um, mm -hmm. No, let me rephrase this. And th th so there was two options then for her succession, as I understand. One was to go with another Protestant that they wanted. Another was to go with a Catholic. And this is, isn't this the heart of the problem at the top of the uh, society at that time? That, that was part of it, yes. Mm. But um, I think the other part was the queen had children and uh, she was hesitant to admit this. <laughs> right. and that's how she, you know, she had a dilemma. And I think that she may have promised it to the Earl of Essex or the Earl of Southampton. I think both were her children. Mm. Uh, of course, this is my speculation, but, uh, the, but the way they were treated were unlike any other no nobility or, or courtiers. That comes through in the movie, too. I mean, the Earl of Essex insulted her to her face wow. in front of others many times. And wow. he was never sent to the tower. I mean, he, he yeah. survived. It took his own insurrection rebellion against her to get him in jail mm. and um, eventually he was executed yeah but the earl of southampton who was in league with him uh he was in he was sentenced to death like the earl of essex but 
it didn't happen. And history has never provided the reason why. And I think it may concern No, and in the, in the movie, they, they speculate that he's the son of uh, De Vere. Yes. Yeah. Mm. So mm. that it, it could have been a, a, a deal mm. that he gave up his Shakespeare identity to save his child. And then I understand it that uh, when the Cecil moved their eye, uh, the Cecils are now the, like the power behind the throne, Protestant people, when they moved their eye on James, <laughs> that was seen as some kind of, um, what you call it, settlement between the factions? Because obviously his mother, Mary of Scotland, was a Catholic, but he himself professed to be a Protestant, so that right. he would be like the settlement between the two factions, if I understand uh, this part of British history correctly? You know, I think that it was uh, Cecil, Robert Cecil, that made it happen. Mm. Um, and I I don't think it was a settlement. He was secretly conspiring with James to succeed. Mm. Uh, so the, the Queen didn't even know. And, and they were behind a gunpowder plot, right? Set up the... Do, uh, do you know this part of the th- story where they set up this poor Guy Fawkes as a fall guy, as a patsy. Yes, I I understand that that was the case. Yes, mm. it was not a true uh, bombing. It was it was a false flag. Yeah, of the parliament. And uh, uh, so they had an excuse to seize the other faction. But um, Keep in mind that we only know by the authority of Robert Cecil, that the Queen uh, said yes to to uh, the King of Scotland right. to succeed her. So she may have been against James. Uh, we, we don't know what her true plan was, mm. but uh, certainly Cecil took care of it. You know, many the way he wanted. Yeah, many Baconians think that um, James was the cousin of uh, Bacon. That Bacon was a kind of an anonymous too. <laughs> <laughs> So it's very interesting plots and, and connections going on here. Uh, let's introduce uh, De Vere then to the story. Uh, where was he religiously, politically, and in terms of relationship with, with the big players of the time? Well, um, he knew the Queen quite young. Um, when he was 12 years old, he became the Queen's ward because his father, the 16th Earl, had passed away when he was a minor. So back then, um, for court, for, for nobility, it was the thing that um, the new guardian is the king or whoever the king appoints. And uh, in this case, uh, Queen Elizabeth uh, gave him to Lord Burley, William Cecil, um, as his guardian. So he grew up in Lord Burley's household. Burley had an enormous library, just like Dee. Mm. And he, of course, knew the Queen from, from about age 12 on, for sure. And, uh, of course, he was incredibly educated. Uh, he, at eight years old, he went to Cambridge, which was very young. And uh, he got a bachelor's degree. Then he went on to uh, Oxford and he got a master's degree when he was 16. Thereafter, he went to Gray's Inn, which was a law society. So he learned law there. And um, 
he eventually married Lord Burley's daughter, Anne Cecil. So he was in, very thick into the house of power, who mm. <laughs> was uh, Lord Burley. And Lord Burley was, as you mentioned, Protestant. Later on, the Earl of Oxford admitted that he became a, a secret Catholic. Hmm. And he admitted that to the Queen, but he renounced it. So I think he was, a, in essence, probably was a Protestant throughout his life, hmm. uh, other than that incident, as far as religion goes. Um, but he was an extremely well-educated person who had a love for the theater. His father had a company of, of players, so it was right there with him. Oh, so he grew up with it. He grew up with it. He grew up with it. And even his uncle was the Earl of Surrey, who was a, a well-known courtier poet. Um, he didn't live very long. I believe he was executed. But he, he has many poems that survives. And he, he developed blank verse, which, of course, Shakespeare used. Mm. Another interesting thing is that the Earl of Oxford, as a very young, had many tutors. One of them was Sir Thomas Smith, who was a diplomat and a very well-educated man. And he, too, had an excellent library. Hmm. Uh, De Vere lived in his house for I don't know how long, a certain time. Um, and another tutor of his was his uncle, Arthur Golding, who was one of the best Latinists of the period. And um, he was living also at Cecil's house, along with the young Earl of Oxford. And at the time, he was working on a translation of Ovid's Metamorphosis. Mm -hmm. And it was Golding's translation, which every Shakespeare scholar will tell you, um, was the Shakespeare's favorite version. And, of course, Ovid's uh, works are all throughout the Shakespeare plays. Mm. So, um, they, they, you know, the connections, even from the very beginning, show. Um, and his uh, other tutors, uh, I think he was aged uh, 13 or 14, said that they've taught him everything they could. That, that mm. they could no longer, their services are no, no longer needed. Mm. So he was definitely a child prodigy. But did he really marry Cecil's daughter? Yes, he did. Um, but he didn't want to, actually. <laughs> yeah, they had arranged marriages in, in the nobility. Well, he, he apparently may have been having an affair with the queen at this time. And so he was, you know, devoted to the queen. Mm. Um, but his first wedding date, he didn't make. He didn't show up. <laughs> Oh, poor girl. Uh, but then uh, I think a few weeks later uh, they rescheduled, and yes, he did show up. So yeah, he didn't he didn't want to marry her. Um, it because he perhaps was raised with her. You know, she mm. was a child, mm. and he was living in her, his her father's house. So he may have regarded her as a sister. Yeah, yeah. But uh, the Earl of Oxford took um, when he was. Uh, 25, he took a grand tour of Europe. Mm. And as, including Italy? Including Italy. Mm -hmm. He spent the most amount of time in Italy. He was mm. based in Venice. Mm. And he traveled. <laughs> he probably met a merchant there. He, you know, he could have. He could have. <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, uh, the odds are low for that. But uh, tell me this, Dan. Uh, if uh, he was bred out of such a creative environment, what was the problem with uh, De Vere putting his name to the place? Well, as I mentioned, there was a social code that it's not something you want people to be aware of, right? This during lifetime. But Christopher Marlowe and Ben Johnson put their names on it, but they were perhaps not that high up in the chain, right? No, that Johnson was different. He had no title, no, you know, he was not gentry. Mm. Um, he was, you know, he was just a regular person. Um, and so there would be no stigma attached. But if you were of the nobility and you people knew you were writing plays, that that was a stigma. It would it would you know be a notch on your name. It would stain your name. And um, as I mentioned, contemporaries mentioned this, so that's why they they also kept the secret because it was his wish. Um, you know, and I have a, a long chapter going into what contemporaries were writing about the great author. Mm. And they point to him being a nobleman. They point yeah. to him being someone writing anonymous, anonymously. Mm. Um, they, they hinted in some cases that he was the Earl of Oxford. And they, um, they also hinted he was dead um, as early as 1607. But uh, Oxford, let's, let's clear up his timeline. He wasn't dead. Was he dead by 1607? No. Yes, he, he died in 1604. Four, was, okay, that's right. And he was born in 1550. And in 1607, the Stratford man was still alive. He, he died in 1616. So, so that could. So now I understand. So, so if he died in 1604, and many of the plays were published after his death, then he would have no control over over the chaos. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Mm. That's but, a, yeah. But they were published either anonymously or with the pseudonym William Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah. But um, I wonder about connections. So I'm going to hit you with questions about connections. Now, Oxford, do you know if he had any, is there any indications that he had encounters with Marlowe or Johnson? Um, n- no, no, there's no, um, no known encounters with Johnson. or Because Johnson, Johnson knows something about the author. I think. Johnson, yes, I think Johnson knew Oxford. I'm sure Oxford knew him, but there's not documentary evidence. No. Right. Um, the uh, Johnson much later wrote that he, you know, a little anecdote about Shakespeare, that he was with him and that he, he couldn't stop talking. Right. And it made everybody <laughs> laugh like, like that. Mm. But that was William Shakespeare. They didn't he didn't put the name um, mm. the Earl of Oxford. Mm. All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the paid link on our webpage. Thanks. What about, uh, is there any known connections between Bacon and Oxford? Yes. Bacon was a cousin to Anne Cecil. And, of course, Oxford married Anne Cecil. So he was like a cousin-in-law. Mm. But but if you were looking for connections with other writers, with the Earl of Oxford, mm-hmm. 
apparently he 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 had a he rented rooms um, in the Strand, and many authors were being employed there. And I believe it was John Lilly, Anthony Mundy, and Thomas Nash certainly. Mm. So he was a Oxford was a great patron of the arts. Um, About 28 dedications, book dedications were made to him. And he, he, and these books were of music, of history. They were translations, poetry, um, you name it. Other, uh, he, he was a great sponsor and they appreciated that. He was also the leader of a literary movement called Euphuism. Hmm. And he also had, like his father, he had troops of actors, two acting troops. Hmm. And um, so that was okay. They could do that. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Many of the courtiers had acting troops. So, but he was definitely involved in the theater. He even held a lease on a theater. Right, but not the Globe. Not the Globe. No. But uh, if he had theaters and theater troops, then it would be easy for him to seed manuscript for performance. Do we know if any of the plays uh, held were sanctioned by the author? Like the author gave it to a back man and said, here, put these on. I don't know. There's no evidence of mm. that. Okay. There's no evidence of that. But I think these plays were initially made for Queen Elizabeth. Mm. All of them. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> and um, I'm actually, I'm working on a paper right now showing that many of these plays were, were performed before the Queen, but under titles that are not right. as we know them today. Mm. Um, the, the best example would be in 1577, the Queen saw a history of error. Mm. Sounds very much like Shakespeare's comedy of errors, right? Mm. Um, and there's many more of those, which I'm going to detail in a paper. But the Shakespeare scholars believe that the play was written in around 1595, not 1577. So they cannot make this connection. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, if it was 1597, they would say, oh, yes, of course, this was Shakespeare's play. Mm. See, the timing is wrong. Mm. And uh, that's another thing. His contemporaries wrote that he was writing in the 1570s and 1580s, right? Mm-hmm. But um, that doesn't work with uh, the, the Stratfordian point of view, right? So they have to ignore these. Well, well, hang on. When was, when was Will Shakespeare born and dead, uh, as far as we know? He was born in 1564. Yeah, that creates a problem for them. <laughs> yes, yes. And they, they're trying to squeeze like 40 plays, two long poems, narrative poems, and 150 sonnets in really a less than a 20-year period. Mm. You know, that's, that's, that's hard. And I think that's why sometimes they come to the conclusion, oh, well, George Peel wrote part of Titus Andronicus, you know, or uh, Marlowe helped him with some of the uh, Henry the Sixth plays, things like that, because they need to, they need to uh, give part of these plays to other authors because it's just too much. Right, right. In this, uh, with the Stratford man's timeline, it just doesn't, it doesn't. Yeah, so when did he die? The Stratford man died in 1616. 1616, okay. And they think he started writing plays around 1590, 
but they think that he retired in 1613. <laughs> <Right>. So, <laughs> you know, it's... Uh, I've seen a list over... Uh, I, I think the Shakespeare curriculum is growing because uh, I've seen a list over... I don't have it by my hand now, that's too bad. But um, how many are officially accepted? You know, I, I I think for sure 38, but they've also uh, done Edward III, I think, and Edmund Ironsides. There's a few of them. Um, Rich, the, the, uh, one that they called Richard, the first part of Richard II. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it does keep growing. And I think there are more plays. Um, and in one of my chapters, I, I cite plays that are very much like Shakespeare's plays. Like, for example, Shakespeare wrote Taming of the Shrew. But there was an a earlier play, almost very close to it, called Taming of a Shrew, mm. which may almost certainly was an early version of Shakespeare's play. Mm. He just changed it over the years. Mm. And there's a few others like that. And Ramon Jimenez has written a book called Shakespeare's Apprenticeship, which goes through them, and, and also an early King Lear, except it wasn't spelled L-E-A-R, it was spelled L-E-I-R. Mm. He thinks that these were Shakespeare's early plays, that later he just dropped and did another version of them. And see, the, the of course, the Stratfordians can't see this, because it would be impossible that he wrote more than 50 plays. <laughs> you know, it's just getting out yeah. of hand. Plus, the British language wasn't set in stone by this time, so there would be ver versions of how stuff was spelt, uh, uh, written down. Yeah. That was natural. That's true, But, uh, yeah, I, sti I still want to pick your brain for some connections. Do we know? Obviously, there's a connection between Cecil and Bacon, because he was related to, you said, his daughter? Francis Bacon was related to Anne Cecil. Anne Cecil. Yeah, Anne Cecil's mother was, I think, a Bacon. On the mother's side, right, right. Yes, yes. Now, an interesting name uh, that has popped up in Baconian circles is Henry Neville. He seems to have been central in in this Shakespeare project. Is the connections between Oxford and Neville? I know Neville is featured in your book. That was one of the first things I checked. <laughs> um, but can you recall? Um, no, I don't think there there is a connection. But some people think he was the great author. <laughs> yeah, th this is the thing. Um, He's another one. <laughs> yeah, but the updated uh, theory is that uh, the Shakespeare project was a part of a larger project uh, and that the real Rosicrucians were these people. Actually, they were inspired by something in France. I forgot what that was called, but there was a similar project there. And now Bacon orchestrated it. Oh, Bacon, uh, okay. And he was the big plot maker, the organizer. But it doesn't mean he, like, was the poet. It doesn't mean he was composing everything. For example, it seems obvious that his knowledge of law was seeded into it because it's just too much knowledge for, for, for one man. Um, I mean, not necessarily, but it is more likely, uh, many think, that, that it could have been a collaboration. And I'll tell you something interesting. Other names yeah. that seems to be involved in this project doesn't mean everybody was writing. This project had many aspects to it. It wasn't just the Shakespeare play. They were used by these people. Okay. But in this project, not saying these are authors, some names are Philip Sidney, John Lyle, 
Henry Neville, and you already told us there was connection with John Lyle. You can't recall if there was connections with Neville, but in your book, Neville is is, is featured. And I, I think it's highly likely that Oxford could have uh, authored many of these things. And whether he was, whether he died bef- uh, and then it was used, or he was in on it. I mean, that's an open question. What I wish, actually, is that the Shakespeare, that we could debunk once and for all the Stratfordian herring. Yes. And then all these Shakespeare scholars could put their brains to good use and start to analyze these things, uh, comparing them with known. Uh, exactly. Right. That's, I'm waiting for that day. Yeah. Because uh, the scholarship is going to be outstanding. It's going to be wonderful. Yeah. There's going to be all sorts of new discoveries. Yeah, yeah, I think I think we have the tools today, yeah. uh, both in terms of human resources, but also machine resources to start discovering stuff like this by doing really deep probe into everything from sentence structure and yeah. th- there's so much we know. You know, for every year that passes, we know more and more, right? Sure. So this could be utilized to once and for all start to mapping these things. But of course, it's being uh, <laughs> complicated by the fact that there were pirate versions out there. <laughs> right, right. You can't really get a true reading. Yeah. Yes, if you don't. Uh, but what do you think happened to the originals then? I mean, this is the million-dollar question, right? But uh, do you have any thoughts about it? That's the holy grail to find <laughs> the missing manuscripts or even one page of a, a Shakespeare manuscript. That mm. that would just the, – the world would go crazy, especially mm. if it was the Earl of Oxford's handwriting. Mm. Uh, but, yeah, I don't know where they are. I don't know. It's either either they were collected and destroyed – Mm-hmm. Or they were collected and deposited somewhere. Mm-hmm. And who knows where that could be? Who knows when it'll be found? I, I'm hoping, I'm hoping for that day. Then so then we're really going to see. Some people think Oak Island. I know, yeah. I know. Mm-hmm. When, when are they going to get to the bottom of Oak Island? It yeah. seems like they, they're always on the verge. Yeah, they, they have to milk nothing that. Nothing ever happens. No, they have to milk it. But uh, I think this year we have some breakthroughs, uh, at least in terms of the gold. But I, I, I'm not so sure that, you know, they f- did find manuscripts there. And the manuscripts were preserved in the Baconian uh, way. And some th- even think Bacon is buried there because obviously famously his tomb is empty. Mm. And he did predict it. He did write that he in, uh, instructed a big man in this conspiracy is Thomas Bushell, who was Bacon's uh, confidant and sec- uh, right-hand man, who apparently hired... Um, now I'm into Peter Amundsen's take on this. He hired uh, Spanish prison laborers to to do this Oak Island project. So, oh, wow. yes, it's, 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 it's so much information we can't even. I mean, I've covered it in many shows, and I've just scratched the surface. But sure. when we go to Oak Island, even if there's a Shakespearean connection, which very well may be, because there's so many circumstantial evidences for it, that's not the entire thing either. It probably started with Templars and. Interestingly enough, King James seems to be... Do you, by the way, do you think King James knew who was behind the authorship? Yes, definitely. Mm. Um, so do I. And he liked the plays very much. In fact, um, when Ox- Oxford died in June of 1604, in December of 1604, six Shakespeare plays were performed before King James mm. was the new king at that point. 
Mm. So, I mean, that to me was a tribute to the Earl of Oxford. Yeah. Um, and uh, a few years later, when his daughter got married, I think it was 1612 or 1613, another six or seven Shakespeare plays were also performed. And of course, Whose daughter? King James' daughter? King James's daughter. Mm, mm. To the King Palatine of Bohemia or something like that. But the interesting thing is, is, you know, the Stratford man was alive in 1604, 05 and 1612, yeah. but nowhere, nowhere was the great author present during a, what was a, really a tremendous tribute to one author when these plays were performed mm. in front of the king. So, mm. Now, James and Bacon were tight. It seems that uh, some of the stuff that may have been brought over to the New World, not by Bacon himself, but by Bushel, is some artifact that they had hidden in Scotland. Mm -hmm. So this is a huge, this Shakespeare thing is a part of a huge story. Um, well, still, it's a huge story in itself to find out well, who me, was involved. Yeah, let me just say this, that uh, James knew Oxford. Mm. And uh, Queen Elizabeth gave Oxford a thousand pound annuity in 1586 for no specific reason. Mm. It's in the it's in the treasury books. Mm. So when the queen died, King James kept the annuity going. Ah. So he definitely favored Oxford. I, and I believe he called him Great Oxford. By the way, when when did uh, uh, Elizabeth die and James take took over? She died in March of 1603. 1603. And then James uh, it's funny he it took James, um, I think, a little more than a month to come to England. Mm. <laughs> I think he was not 100% sure no. you know, <laughs> that he would be accepted. The coast had to be clear. Yeah, so, he wouldn't uh, walk into a trap or anything. But that means he only got one year uh, to hang out with Oxford. Right, right. There you go. Interesting. Uh, Bacon, of course, lived, lived much, much longer. But um, yeah. it's still interesting to know if, if Oxford... It seems to me now that... De Vere was so tight. I mean, maybe everybody had connections at the top of the society, but there's clearly deep connections between De Vere and many of these main plotters. Yeah. So I, I think maybe he would be in on it, or either that, or they just used his stuff as a trib as an homage. They needed something anyway, and. Uh, uh, I also wonder who came up with the shaker of the spear thing. I think that may have been Bacon. Although, isn't there also references to Oxford uh, and the shake, shaking of the spear? Yes. In, um, I think it was uh, 1578 uh, or 79, Gabriel Harvey, who was an author uh, during that period, he gave, he was one of several people who gave um, speeches, public speeches, uh, in Queen Elizabeth's presence, her and her courtiers. And one of the speeches was directed to the Earl of Oxford. It was in Latin, mm. but he said, uh, thy will shakes spears. It can be interpreted, the Latin, mm. thy will shakes spears. Mm. And um, we didn't even get into this, but the Earl of Oxford was a champion at the joust. Um, he, when he was 21 or 22, he, he won a tournament. In fact, he won two tournaments. Mm -hmm. So uh, the weapon that they used, right, in jousting, it's called a long spear. So he was a spear shaker for sure. Mm. And so it makes sense that, you know, William, Sh he would be 
called uh, William Shakespeare as a pen name. Um, also, something to note is that when the name was printed at this time frame, about half the time there was a hyphen between shake and spear. Mm. It was an indication of a made-up name. Mm. Like, it didn't indicate, you know, it's a noun and verb, spear shaking, yeah. right? It's clearly a reference. But uh, when was the first time it was officially put on print? Um, the first time was in 1593 on Shakespeare's long poem called Venus and Adonis. Mm. And it was not on the title page. It was on the dedication page to the Earl of Southampton. And, you know, it was signed William Shakespeare. It didn't have the hyphen in it, though. No. But um, uh, did you know that they found um, uh, in Bacon's um, papers where, that where he was practicing signing <laughs> Shakespeare, William Shakespeare? <laughs> I mean, that's a smoking gun. Right. That was the North Northumberland manuscript, I think. <laughs> yes. And I think, like, if Shakespeare... No, I mean, if Bacon wanted this sub-project of his of the greater project which they think was started on a d by the way who was a master of quotes then um, i think he he came up with it because of his name and everything which means lord verulam verulam something means shaker of the spear and uh, you know his arm of quotes etc but it would be natural that if oxford authored the lot the, the the majority of the creator writings under that name it will be also be natural that he be referred to as the shaker of the spirit if you see yeah and again i'll be dying to know that if he was in on it deliberately or if if he wasn't now it's also interesting to see that um, all these people who came together they had expertise in many aspects that came into their place so there's also a certain, you know, it couldn't just be that Oxford wrote them and then they took them. There's also, it seems to be that they seeded subjects or stuff that they wanted. You know, hey, Edward, could you make a play about right. <laughs> this and that? You do the creative stuff, you do the poetry, etc. But we want, these are the subjects we want to be touched or these are the political ideas or these are the this or that, you understand? That's how it ha- has had to happen. And then... He could draw upon uh, any of the experts in his vicinity. If he if he fell short himself, he could just you know, not exactly call up, but at least look up, for example, Bacon or Neville or whoever was was in this sphere. This is part of the thinking of how the process could have been. Oh, really? But uh, if uh, the good uh, Earl died in o four. Do we know of any, I mean, stuff could come out later, of course, post-humorous, but do we know if there's any sign of anything be created after that? When is the last official published Shakespeare work? Um, well, yeah, you had a steady stream of Shakespeare publication um, pretty much up until 1605. Mm. Um, and then it starts to drop off. And then you had in 1609, you have the terrible edition of Pericles that came out. Um, so it, something to keep in mind, too, for your listeners, is that there is no a set in stone timeline for any Shakespeare plays. And sometimes 
you know, a, a Shakespeare professor will say, oh, it couldn't be the Earl of Oxford because he died in 04 and The Tempest was written in 1610. And, you know, they can't know that. There's no evidence for mm. that. They can't know it and they don't know it. And besides, uh, just because there was a shipwreck, um, they, they think, oh, it had to be the one in 1609, right? But mm. it could have been other shipwrecks. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, they really are grasping at straws when it comes to the dating. And as we mentioned, you know, having to compress it in such a small amount of time for the Stratford man. Um, but I agree. I think that the Earl of Oxford could have been directing um, other playwrights to write things. Mm. Two of his secretaries were playwrights, Anthony Monday and John Lilly. Mm. They were his private secretaries. Um, so it, it, it's certainly possible. Um, he's, he certainly is the one who got the history plays going. And I think it inspired some other authors, including uh, Marlowe. Um, he did Edward II. So um, he could have been part of a larger group. But as far as the Shakespeare plays as we know them, I see a, a similar voice throughout them. Mm. So, I, so I do think... Yeah, but, but when, when the Stratfordian scholars are grasping for straws and trying to find others because this is how they are forced to actually even entertain that there may be someone else involved because they need to fix the timeline right yes but yes but then they okay then they're putting but they're not putting that scrutiny into everything right so they're just putting it into those few things that threaten their narrative yeah. and that they analyze to death to find others but they, of course then they have to avoid anyone who are they can never attribute anything to oxford or bacon or neville right because then they they open the door for they have a huge political problem in their scholarly work actually yeah. <laughs> there's so many taboos they have to avoid <laughs> so they have to involve innocent players right Right. And, um, you know, they they really are all they can do. It really is cast aspersions on doubters. That's mm. really what it boils down to. And they they won't even prove their case for money like the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust. They were offered 40,000 pounds to prove that the Stratford man was the great author in a mock trial mm. and they wouldn't accept Mm. Mm, so no. they, they know they have no evidence but they just want to keep it going yeah, it's, but it's a huge business industry yes yeah yes. that's what it's all about so so we need actually need to stop taking them seriously i mean of course they 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 got um, the public narrative they have an ownership of that that's why we have to bother but uh, it's really not a serious debate. I think the serious debates are taking place among the non-Stratfordians. And uh, I'd, I'd like a, to see like a round table. Has that been done? A round table of different uh, people who favor different? Because I, I, I don't know how it is culturally, but there should be peace and cooperation between all yeah. anti-Stratfordians. Well, um, there is a, a group that is open to all candidates called the Shakespeare Authorship Roundtable in LA, mm. and they have a website, Shakespeare Authorship Roundtable. Um, but no, that would actually would be a good idea to have a big, you know, a Baconian, Marlovian, and Oxfordian all together. Mm. Yeah, but um, you know, I I give a lot of kudos to the Baconians because they're the ones who really got rid of the Stratford man. You know, mm. they mm. really 
brought that argument out, which made perfect sense and really got rid of him. Mm. Uh, our theory uh, for the Earl of Oxford started in 1920 with... Uh, who, who launched that first? Yeah, that was um, John T. Loney or Looney. Um, in 1920, <laughs> yeah. and he was an English schoolmaster, and he taught Shakespeare, and he he taught Merchant of Venice over and over and over and over, and he he really got a feeling for the great author. And mm. when he looked at you know the Stratford man's life, he just couldn't marry the two people <laughs> that they were the same person. Mm. So. And obviously, he had to have known about the authorship controversy in Bacon, because that started in the 1850s. Yeah. Um, you know, it kind of came to a head starting then. And so what he did was he made a list of characteristics of who the great author had to be. Mm. He had to be wary of women. He had to have certain sympathies. He had to have uh, be a court insider. He had, you know, he made this whole list. And um, then he went about looking for authors who wrote in the same meter as Venus and Adonis, which was Shakespeare's first mm. published poem. And, and, and I believe that was published uh, first, not under the Shakespeare name, right? No, it was. It was. In okay. 1593, Venus and Adonis. But there was one of these early things that were published not under his name as I recall it. I forgot which one. I thought it was that one. No, it wasn't that one. Mm. But, so go but, on. Sorry, I'm not, I don't know which one it was. No. But uh, back to, to Loney. And so anyway, he looked for this certain, I think it's called Rhyme Royal. And he uh, looked in a, a book of 16th century verse. Mm -hmm. And he, you know, he went through everything. And the only one who was using it, there were two. One was anonymous, and one was the Earl of Oxford. What do you mean when you say anonymous? It had no signature. Ah, ah okay, a publication. Yeah. A poem with no signature. Right, right, right. And the other one was a poem with the Earl of Oxford's signature. But this is excellent, because I, I thought uh, nothing survived of De Vere. But uh, there are actually creative writings we know by his hand that yes, has survived. Yes, in 1576, several of his poems occurred in an anthology called The Paradise of Dainty Devices. And these were compiled by Richard Edwards, who was a playwright. Mm. And he died in 1566. He died 10 years earlier. So this compilation was verses that Oxford wrote when he was 16 or younger. So mm. they are juvenile, quote unquote, juvenile works. Mm. Mm. But yes, we ha we do have some of his signed poetry here and there, <laughs> mm. or with his initials, E.O. Which wasn't meant to go public, but somehow became yeah. public. Yeah, right, mm. right. So anyway, so he looked in, uh, Loney looked into the Earl of Oxford because of this matching rhyme scheme with Shakespeare's, mm. and he just found so many par life parallels with Oxford and incidents in the Shakespeare plays that just were, you know, amazing. And that that's resulted in his book, uh, mm. Shakespeare Identified in the 17th Earl of Oxford, 1920. Mm. So mm. He, he was the, the founder and he convinced Sigmund Freud that Oxford was the great author. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So and, and several others. Um, 
Do, but do you say there is cooperation between non Stratfordians. Uh, that's great. Do you have any idea of which are the biggest factions among the... I, I suppose we should toss the Malovians in, in there too. So, like per today, it seems to me that the Oxfordians are the biggest faction today. I would agree, yes. Yes. And then probably the Baconians and then the Marlovians. Right, right. But, you know, there's been uh, over 100 candidates over the years, yeah. over the last 150 years, and including a group theory. Yeah, um, yeah. but there's several group theories. The one I favor is actually so deep, it's so complex. That's why I hesitate to even talk about it now, because it would cease the whole show. And it's not about... We have had uh, a little, a few shows about that, and we'll have more. Okay. But, um yeah... No, I think I, th- I know it was a group project in many ways, but I don't know if it, there could still be one author, if you see what I mean, or one main author. Yes. Uh, because this group project was much, obviously, they had a much bigger agenda than just <laughs> publish. You don't have to go to this cloak and dagger level just to publish a few plays, right? Right. So uh, this was a part of a, a, a much bigger project, a much more subver- well, subversive project. I, I think that Henry V was um, a, definitely a political play mm. Mm. because it was meant to rouse up the patriotism of the English in uh, facing uh, the, the, uh, the Armada. Yeah. Um, uh, it was probably written around uh, circa 1585, but of course uh, Stratfordians will say it was much later, but it was probably in 85. And um, I think... When was the famous battle? In 1588. 88. Mm. And Oxford apparently was in the battle. Oh. He was on one of the ships. Interesting. Yeah. And um, there's many life parallels with Oxford. Um, For example, in Merchant of Venice, uh, the merchant, right, Antonio, he borrows 3,000 ducats from Shylock, the moneylender. Well, Oxford borrowed 3,000 pounds from a man named Michael Locke, L-O-K. <laughs> right. And Oxford lost, he, he, he was investing in uh, the, finding the Northwest Passage mm-hmm. to India. And unfortunately, he lost everything. He didn't, n- nothing was found in this journey. Ah. So... So, uh, you know, it makes sense when... Henry- yeah, because he died poor, right? Well, well, yeah, it reduced, reduced circumstances. Reduced, I mean. But, it, it, but it make, he married some, a wealthy person, actually, toward the end. But um, it makes sense when Hamlet says, I am but mad north, northwest. Ah. Because he lost a lot of money in the, right. the trying to find the Northwest Passage. Right. He also knew John Dee, by the way. He did know. Interesting. And, yeah. What's that connection? John Dee um, writes that he had letters from the Earl of Oxford in 1570, when Oxford was, you know, 20 years old. And he, he, he meant, yeah, so he didn't mean his father, because he took over very early, right? Right, right. So, right. Mm. So that, and, you know, he may have based Prospero partially on John Dee. Yeah, that seems to be uh, agreement. About and I... I I think he also based it on Prospero Visconti, in which I, I wrote a paper about this. Mm-hmm. Not discovered by me. It was discovered by an art historian, uh, uh, Ernest Gombrich. 
Um, and he um, discovered that Prospero Visconti, his family were the Dukes of Milan, and Prospero was a Duke of Milan. And Prospero Visconti, somebody wrote uh, a verse to him saying that um, that his family lost the dukedom to villainy. Mm. And Shakespeare Prospero lost his dukedom to villainy. Mm. So there's a connection there. And he was alive when Oxford went to Italy. Ah. So it's very possible that they met. And Oxford went to Milan. Right. So, so because my first thought was that the personality was John Dee, but that uh, it may have been a paraphernalia was 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 this guy. But if he met him, then uh, it could be more than that. It's very possible that they met their paths. But, but, but could you call him a wizard? The, the 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 Italian one? Um, no, but he was very well educated, and he he Alchemist. was an artist himself. He was a sculptor. Mm. He had an enormous library. He was very well respected, mm. and he was a nobleman too. Right. So yeah. But uh, why wouldn't uh, Oxford support James' claim to the throne if they were on good terms? I think that Oxford did, but only after. Southampton came out of the tower. I think Southampton was his child. And mm. I think that he had wanted, he, he sort of thought, maybe it was a romantic notion, but he thought that he would succeed to Queen Elizabeth because of him being his child, her child. <laughs> so You mean uh, De Vere wanted his son to succeed? Yes. Not yes. himself. Right, his son. Yeah. Mm. So and then and then probably the Cecil said, "Look, if we'll save his life, but you have to get behind James." Could that exactly. be? Yeah. Yes, that's mm. the way I see it. And then, of course, when he did succeed, of course, Oxford, you know, went along with it. And as I mentioned, uh, James renewed his thousand pound a year annuity. Mm. So Bacon also seems to be have in on this plot uh, by supporting uh, James. It seems an uh, overwhelming conspiracy to get him in. I just wonder why then the Cecils, who seems seems to be of low moral, why there nothing indicates that they were involved in this at all. But in the movie Anonymous, the Cecils are portrayed as being against creative stuff. Yeah. Somehow that's uh, an affront to God or something. Do we know anything about that? Could that be the case here, that they despised uh, these kind of uh, writings and therefore naturally wouldn't be involved in, in this well, part think, of the plot? Well, I think yes, because as we mentioned, I think that Oxford, uh, as the writer, was lampooning them, the Cecils. And mm. uh, as we mentioned, Polonius being Lord Burley, um, Richard Third. Many people viewed him as uh, Robert Cecil, who, who succeeded um, his father as being the kingmaker. Mm. Yeah. And also we have a letter where um, Burley refers to Oxford's friends, uh, probably meaning his playwright friends or poetry friends, as lewd, L-E-W-D. Mm. So, no, they, you know, it was that sort of activity was not encouraged by the Cecils. Mm, mm. And so, and they had reason to want to cover it up too. So. Uh, co no, it, cover up what? 
that the true author was Oxford mm. because Oxford knew them well, right? Yeah, knew he was married into their family. Right, but the, <laughs> but the Stratford man had no connection whatsoever, so he was the perfect decoy. Right, right. The Stratford man decontextualized all the works, really. Right, right. Especially the sonnets. Okay. How yeah, I mean, the... The sonnets, in my opinion, tells the story of, of Southampton as uh, being the queen and Oxford's child. Mm. And uh, that really needed suppression. That, mm. that idea could not take hold in the public knowledge that Southampton really was a prince. And But if they if they'd really rebelled against her, then they obviously must have known that they have a claim to the throne. They couldn't be ignorant about... Yes, yes. And as I mentioned, uh, she, they were treated very differently than other courtiers mm. and favorites. Because mm. so, uh, in the movie, they are portrayed as naive, as they are not aware that they are her sons. No, I think they knew. Yeah. They knew. They treated her accordingly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with super, uh, repressed uh, despise and everything. But uh, if we rewind a little here, um, we have... Uh, Uh, this uh, very dangerous time when it comes to politics that uh, uh, you couldn't be involved in this or that. But there's also the spiritual aspect. There's, uh, for example, this dude I mentioned to you that I'm trying to get on my show. His name is... Um, Green? Yes, Alan Green. His take is pretty original, I think. He's, he involves all sorts of people, uh, John D. Uh, lots. Now he argues that there's deep uh, stuff. I mean, what you know about the codes and all that, yeah. but he also talks about that there is an ancient lore hidden in Shakespeare, which goes back to Egypt. And or, or he, I, I'll, I'll let him come on and explain this himself. But do we know if? Uh, and of course, the Earl of Oxford doesn't have to know anything about this, but because this can be have inserted by other players in the. Yeah. In the conspiracy, if you like. But do we know if uh, De Vere had any esoteric or, or, or spiritual? Like, for example, D is famous for this. Uh, even Francis Bacon, who was a learned man of science. So do we know if uh, <clears throat> there's an esoteric aspect of uh, De Vere? Well, um, as I mentioned, he corresponded with D and... That's and right. And he was very educated and you couldn't avoid knowing stuff like alchemy, etc. if you were very educated. And um, Dee was frequented, uh, you know, the Queen's presence. Um, so did Oxford. But um, Oxford was accused of um, necro ne necromacy. <laughs> oh, really now? Yes. Interesting. Yes, that, that he tried to uh, bring back to life through spirits. Yeah. Uh, dead people. Yeah. Um, now that was related by his enemies, Howard and Arundel. Yeah, to smear him. To smear him. But there but may in have this been, case, it works. Have, it works opposite. <laughs> well, it, there could have been kernels of truth there. Yeah, yeah. You know, because look at the plays. Look at Hamlet. Mm, look at uh, absolutely Richard the uh, Second or Richard the Third. You know, there are ghosts mm, right um, in several of the plays. Mm. So um, I think he may have had a fast... I think he was interested in everything, so he may have mm. been interested in more cult things as well. Mm. 
Interesting. Now, there is um, this uh, website called uh, Doped About Will. Yes. Um, the people behind it is called the Shakespeare Authorship Coalition. Are you a part of this uh, bunch? Yes, I'm I'm one of the board members. Hmm. And they're the ones, um, not when I was a board member, but they were the ones who put out that £40,000 offer right. to uh, a donation to charity to have Stratfordians prove their case in a mock trial, yeah. which they didn't accept. Yeah. Many famous people are involved. For example, Derek Jacobi. Yes, he's an Oxfordian. Yeah, and he was uh, heavily featured in the movie too. Yes, he was. Yeah, he's And, and Kier Cutler. Is part of this. Ah, oh, there you are, treasurer. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you're the one who's going to run off with the prize. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> prize money. <laughs> nice. I, I like this kind of... But is this only for Oxfordians or is it for everyone? No, it's for everybody. It's neutral. They are mm, neutral. Good. As far as... And we have people on the board who have different beliefs than me, you know, so... Mm. So are you, are you f- intimately familiar with the other... For example, could you uh, give examples of what the Marlovians believe, why they think Marlowe was involved? Well, um, I th- I don't think that he, he wrote the works because he, he died when he was about, I think, 33 or 34. Mm-hmm. He, he was in his early 30s when he died. It's, it's hard to believe that he wrote such a vast yeah. quantity of works in that um, short amount of time. And you would you would have to believe though that he didn't die that he went to the continent and wrote yeah. plays and then sent them back. That's a that's a well known theory. That yeah, it's a little convoluted, I yeah. think. And they, we do have his coroner's report of his death. Someone discovered it in the twentieth century. But what what on earth connects him to? Why do they think he could be? Have they analyzed his place and then found similarities? Is that how it works? There, there are some similarities, but I think that uh, he was reading Shakespeare's plays. He knew Shakespeare. the originals. You mean? I think, he, yeah, I think he yeah. saw that, and many people were imitating Shakespeare. But of mm. course, if you tell the professor, he'll say, "No, Shakespeare was stealing from them." Right. But I mean, we're talking about hundreds of authors. Mm. He was stealing from hundreds of. Uh, it doesn't make sense. No. One of the greatest creative geniuses mm. of all time needed to steal from people. Mm. It just doesn't make sense. But he would be privy to to these manuscripts circulating in private networks. Yeah, he probably. Yeah, he probably knew mm. because he he was close with Nash um, and a few other playwrights, right? And Peel, and he. He was in the the writer circle for sure, mm. but I there is no known connection between he and Oxford. Mm. Uh, I wonder. I, I can't remember if he is theorized to have been involved in the group project. But um, here, Sir Henry Neville. I just found your references to Neville. Do you remember what you said about Neville in the book? Um, he was that he was in the tower. Yeah, uh, that's that I remember. But what did you say about his connection to Oxford? Do you know any? Uh, I'm sorry, I don't know. <laughs> I don't remember now. No, it's a, a lot. It lot wasn't of... major. It wasn't major. No. Uh, let me see here. Essex conspiracy. Yeah, he was uh, a part of the conspiracy. Now I remember. Uh, you say Essex conspirator Sir Henry Neville was uh, released from the Tower along with Southampton. Right. He was. He he paid money mm. to get out. Mm. Yeah. 
but we don't know under what reason uh, that the Earl of Southampton got released. Mm. So we see here a political alliance, obviously, uh, among some of the key players. So I, I think this had both religious, political, spiritual compounds to it, sure. this thing. And um, that's why it's so important to, like, if you're going to blow open this conspiracy, we, we, I mean, it takes, uh, it's a group effort. So I'm so happy that people are cooperating across favorite angles. But uh, yeah, we need, I think we need something to be found to really uh, win this case, like some documents showing up or... I agree. I agree. Or even just a letter where someone yeah. says, oh, yeah, I saw Oxford's play Merchant of Venice. You know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> I really loved it. <laughs> you know, something like that. Yeah, that would be um, wonderful because it's it's uh, if you delve into there's many great tools online. Uh, you also have. We're going to get to that soon. But all arguments that can be said is said. If this was a court case, we would have won long ago. If it was like a hard science thing. You know, the Stratfordians would be put in, uh, what you say, tear and, tar and feather long ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because yeah. they don't. Uh, but it hasn't worked because of the power, because of the economical power and the vested interests. And it just become a religion by now. So that's why I think, uh, of course, we can educate the public. We can educate ourselves. We can go into these the arguments that exist and the evidence that exists. But in order to win the really public nar narrative battle, uh, I think we need something like that to happen. I, I agree. Yeah. Yes. Because the propaganda war can only bring us so far. Okay, before we uh, wrap up here, uh, is there anything uh, left unsaid when it comes to making the case for Oxford? I mean, of course, there's a million things, but are there some important other things I haven't inquired about that uh, we can cover now? Oh, I think I think I pretty much covered it. Mm. Yeah, mm. I mean we didn't we didn't go into the monuments, the uh, Shakespeare monument, how it was changed. I don't know if that. Ah, yeah, I know that from Baconian circles. Yeah, go into that. That's that's cloak and dagger. That's fun. Let's hear about that. Yeah, well, um, the uh, sh the whole foundation of the Stratford myth is is based on, of course. The mention in the prefatory pages to Stratford Monument, Shakespeare's Stratford Monument, and of course the word Avon uh, mentioned in another poem in the in the preface. So you put them together, Stratford on Avon, mm. and of course there's a monument supposedly in Stratford on Avon. If you and if you go there, and if you were living in 1620. Three, when this illusion came out. Oh, uh, it's the one that said, wait, passenger, why yes. it goes still? Yes, yeah. there's, and so sure enough, if you went to Stratford at that period, there was a monument mm. to a Shakespeare. Um, now, the problem is, is that this monument does not depict a writer. That's the problem. <laughs> and how do we know this? Well, I mean, if you go there today, yes, you see uh, a man. Uh, an effigy of a man in a monument holding a pen and paper, right? Mm -hmm. But if you look at documentary evidence of what the monument looked like in 1634, it was something totally different. It was a man 
holding a sack, mm. probably a wool sack. Mm-hmm. And the man had no pen and paper in his hand, and he had a drooping mustache and a full beard, mm. right? Mm. And today's monument is a man holding a pen and paper on a pillow, which mm. is a little strange. Mm-hmm. And he had a small upturned mustache and a goatee. Not a beard. Yeah, that's the famous so-called Shakespeare that, That's face. the one that's there now, right? But that mm. totally differs from what someone drew, Sir, Sir William Dugdale. He drew an image of it for a book, mm. uh, among many other funeral monuments. Mm. And so, uh, and he was a very well-respected antiquarian, and uh, he got a knighthood, you know. Mm-hmm. So it is not true that there was a monument to Shakespeare in Stratford-on-Avon. There was a monument, really, to a wool dealer, and that was actually the Stratford man's father, John. Mm. He was a, a dealer in wool. Mm. And even on the original monument, on on the columns were leopard heads, and leopard heads were the uh, symbol of Stratford on Avon. But mm. they are those leopard heads are not in today's monument. So the whole monument was redone to depict a writer. Mm. And I think that what happened was in during the English Civil War, I think the monument got destroyed, <laughs> and ah. because uh, soldiers were housed. In the church, right, and um, maybe they used it as target practice. Who knows? But mm. but it must have gotten damaged, and so the the uh, church decided to refurbish it, make a new one, and maybe they were getting a lot of visitors wanting to see the monument to the great Shakespeare, so they put a monument that would look like a monument to Shakespeare, a man holding a pen and paper. Mm. Mm. So I think that's... But, but is there... Tell us about the popularity of Shakespeare. Like, he was well-known in... Uh, popular in his... Well, back then, when in the early 1600s, when these plays were held. But um, did he stay on top all, all the time, or did it wane and, and wax again? Or how, how has this been since then? No, he was praised um, throughout his lifetime, mm-hmm. uh, the Strapper man's lifetime, certainly, mm-hmm. in uh, 1605, which is fairly late. He was considered one of the 10 uh, English poets who who will la- whose works will last forever. So uh, he was given great compliments. And um, and he stayed on top all, all, all the way up to... Yes. Um, when, the, when the first folio, which is collected, his collected plays, came out in 1623... It was reprinted after, only after nine years. And, and that's compared to uh, when Ben Jonson's complete works were printed. It took more than 20 years for a reprint. So, and, and Shakespeare's went into four printing yeah. of the folios. But it's interesting that many of the codes are, ju- uh, are just in the first folio, not the reprints, because they, uh, the typographists, they uh, altered it in the reprints, so... Many of the codes get destroyed then. So that is interesting. And of course, you said it was 23 it came out? 16, uh, uh, yes, 1623, late in the year. And by the way, the work was dedicated to the Earl of Oxford's relations. Yeah, that's right. Two of his uh, relatives, I believe. The Earl of Pembroke um, was almost nearly engaged to 
uh, one of Oxford's daughters, and the Earl of Montgomery, his brother, Pembroke's brother, they were both uh, the dedicates of the work. Mm. He married Oxford's youngest daughter, Susan. So um, it was definitely a family affair, too. Mm. Of course, by this this time, um, De Vere was long gone. Yes, Uh, he was dead. I think this was an homage by Bacon. I think he was the one who was behind his uh, publication, and I think they gave him a nod there. But, you know, it's funny that uh, De Vere is probably the only one of a bunch of uh, key players in this back then, and many of his connections too, who isn't mentioned by code. That's so weird. Yeah. I find that almost as suspicious as, because like even Neville is mentioned by code. Um, Brenda James did a great book about that. And uh, of course, Bacon and many others. Yeah. I think even Ben Johnson is featured. So why would they code in a bunch of people, but not the author himself or, or maybe the main author or at least a contributor if I'm going to be strict I, th- I find that almost suspicious as if uh-huh. again then we're back to maybe he they used it without his knowledge i don't know but um or maybe these codes are, are yet to be discovered <laughs> but some of these codes are so refined so obvious yeah. so when you see because the problem with codes of course is that they are visual so having people on and talking about it doesn't make it. But when you see some of the documentaries, uh, by the way, I recommend Peter Amundsen's documentaries. They're free to watch. Okay. It's just, you, you can't believe in the Stratford myth anymore. By the way, speaking of that, uh, this face that everybody think this is how Shakespeare looked. Uh, was that in the first folio that face came for the first time? Yes, that black and white image mm-hmm. by um, Martin Rocha. Moustache. Yes. Okay, so that's the. Uh, so you said that was the one that he made. This. Uh, I, yes, I think it's a made-up image. It, mm. it certainly doesn't resemble the Earl of Oxford, and we don't know what the Stratford man looked like. No. And keep in mind, this was uh, made seven years after the Stratford man had died. Yeah. So uh, we don't know where this came from, but you know, many people see it as a mask. Yeah. The, the face is very wooden and stiff and the hair is strange. Um, you know, this big forehead. I mean, it, it doesn't look really human, um, but especially there's uh, everything is evenly lit in this image. Mm. So much so that you can see two lines at the ear, That's right. a double line. And it has made some people believe this is a mask. If you actually you can pull it off, yeah, a literal mask. There, there. Yes, yeah. a literal mask. And mm. what is a mask? It's a you know, it's a pseudonym. Mm. It's he's hiding behind someone else. Also, remember and, that persona means mask. And if, oh, does it? Yes. So if yeah. you're discussing the personality behind it, then. Uh, I see. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. But, uh, you know, there were people who were in on it, and obviously those who frequented those circles back then, uh, who uh, people knew, even if they weren't a part of it, people knew. Now, you have, um, uh, in Chapter 4, you have something called Overlooked Commentary about Shakespeare by his contemporaries. Yes. I think that would be interesting to hear a little about. Yeah, well, that was uh, what I've been mentioning about how they thought, you know, they mentioned he was a nobleman. Mm. Yeah, but these are inferences. They don't openly say it. They're cryptic about it. Mm. Um, And one great one is by John Davies of Hereford, I believe. And he called Shakespeare and he 
hyphenated Shakespeare, right? Mm. He called him our English Terence. This was in 1611 or... Tyrant? What's that? Terence. What does that mean, Terence? Terence was um, an ancient Roman playwright. Ah. And um, so he's calling him English Terence. And the thing about this is that Terence, it was believed in the 16th century that Terence was really a cover name for two noble dramatists, ancient Roman dramatists. Mm. So Mm -hmm. by him calling Shakespeare our English Terence, it's almost like saying you're somebody who uses a pen name. Mm. So you have to look into the deeper into some of these illusions. And that's what I try to explain in, in, in them. But um, one of them was, as I mentioned, that Shakespeare was dead in 1607. And um, that was by William Barkstead. And he called Shakespeare uh, the neighbor to the muses. Mm. And the muses were immortal goddesses of the arts, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. So if somebody is a neighbor, you're also among them. You're uh, immortal, meaning you're dead. Right. Right, right. You have to take these illusions, you know, a little a step further. Yeah. Another great one in 1609 on the title page of Shakespeare's sonnets, on the title page of the dedication page, Shakespeare is referred to our ever living poet. Mm. Ever living was a word used for people who have died, but whose works will live forever. Ever living. Mm. So I, these are just a few examples. There's uh, mm. a lot more in my in the book. Yeah. yeah, in the book there's plenty. Yes. Uh, but I think it's also strange that nobody came out and said it outright, which kind of suggests to me that the respect that they were sympathetic, that they were in on it, if you see what I mean. Yes. That they didn't just bust. Well, I, I think while the Earl of Oxford was alive, they were respecting his wish to Mm. not talk about it, right? Mm, mm. After he died, it was okay. It would have been okay, but they still didn't do it. No, and you know, this indicates that... That's the problem, yes. No, it's not a problem. I I think that's... I think uh, Bacon is to do with that. I think it's because they were protecting the... Because you're very right, uh, it wouldn't have any consequences for De Vere. But if if this Shakespeare thing was used up until at least the uh, 20s, yeah. then they would have to keep their tongue tied. Although many seem to be wanting to. <laughs> I think it's Ben Johnson. There's some who, who really go out of their way to indicate uh, the charade. But uh, no, they, they kept it tight either because they, they respected it or maybe they, were, maybe they didn't want to go up against this powerful force this so-called conspiracy well, now this is my uh, speculation of course well but well oxford's um as i mentioned his in-laws produced this book who which created the whole shakespeare myth so they had they had a certain reason um i don't i don't think we'll ever know 100 percent why but they were very close to uh the king king james mm. they they really promoted him and and um, were, were his right-hand men. So they wanted to continue the Stuart line. They didn't want any right. pretenders to the throne, mm. like uh, the, the Earl of Southampton maybe being revived as the Queen's child, something like that. They, I mean, they really went out of their way to put the authorship on the Stratford man. 
Mm. Okay, so you think that they deliberately wanted people to think that it was Will Shakespeare, you know, even under James, I mean, this late after he was dead, after uh, De Vere was dead? Yes, they wanted Mm. to decontextualize the works forever. They wanted to preserve the works on one hand, but Mm. also to decontextualize them. You would think that James would have access to the originals or to those versions that were used under Elizabeth and his reign. Maybe he was sitting on them because there's this uh, among this Oak Island thing is that uh, his origin, the collected Shakespeare originals, is buried there. It very well may could be. Yes. Yeah, that that, because there are they have to be somewhere unless they were destroyed and. uh, they haven't popped up in all these years, and Shakespeare has been popular all these years. Uh, people would make a fortune. I mean, nobody would keep this under wraps today. <laughs> exactly, exactly. When uh, when uh, Leonardo da Vinci's manuscripts, it went for a million a page. Right. <laughs> yes, yes. Even this fake, uh, well, it's not fake, but uh, there was this... Uh, painting you know the great scandal around this new da vinci painting popped up oh well yes yeah it it i think it's the most money uh a piece of art has ever gone for yes that was that was a restored thing right it's not even original no so uh, it was actually half ruined so um yes yeah you can just imagine Uh, but you know what i think if it popped up I think uh, some of the ardent Stratfordians, it would end up in their hands. And I think they would rather burn it. than <laughs> oh, No, I, I think. I think so. Yes, because they, they have a vested interest. It's the same. That, you know, look at the... This is the nature of man. I mean, if Shakespeare taught us anything, it is this. Look at the, what the Vatican did. They tried to destroy the Dead Sea Scrolls. It took 50 years for it to get out. And the only reason we even got access to it is that one of the, thank God, one of the researchers, John Allegro, was a rebel. He didn't keep it, keep it under wraps. He wanted it out there to the people. So when, and, and, and the church have destroyed tons of ancient scriptures, oh, you know, showing other aspects of Jesus than what the narration has. So it's not about... And if and these are religious people, they really believe in Jesus. They believe in all this, right? Uh. So if they then find something that's genuine, and they say, "Okay, let's rather destroy it than illuminate more who we believe in," what on earth wouldn't they do then with a guy like Shakespeare? Because, yeah. but okay, that is a religion too. I have to admit, but of course they would do that. So our only bet is that. If if it let's say it was in Oak Island and it pops up, then there's hope because these people, <laughs> they have no holy cows, they have no vested interest. They would totally, you know, make it public, exploit it. Yep. Yes, yes, yeah, they would milk it, of course, economically. But yeah. but uh, that's our best bet because if it pops up in some loft in in England and a naive, you know, the chain of. Uh, you know, it would end up with Stratfordians and they would say, oh, my God, we can't publish this. Look. Oh, no. I, yeah. I, gosh, I don't even want to go there. You haven't thought about it. <laughs> I mean, don't don't want to go there. No, me neither. <laughs> but uh, anyway, let's now uh, go to another place, namely to your stuff. So you've been uh, you said you've been doing this for 30 years. Yeah, more than wow. that. Since 1985. 
So have you, I know you've written all the pieces, but is, is this book your, your only book about uh, Shakespeare mystery? Yes, it's my only book. I'm, I'm working on a couple more, but it takes me time because I, I still work full time. Mm. So, yeah. This book is from 16, I see. Yeah, but it, uh, it's a second edition. The first one was in um, 2011. Oh, okay. So it's 10 years old already. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, it uh, must have helped move the needle because I've seen it referenced many places. Oh, great. Mm. Glad to, yeah. But I really recommend it for people. It's it's an interesting read. It's an easy read. I don't have, uh, like a British person would have uh, a lot of contextual knowledge that they learn in, in school, which we in Scandinavia doesn't because Shakespeare is... More than anything, it's a part of the British heritage, cultural heritage, right? But, oh, yeah. but even so, I could follow most of the stuff. Of course, I haven't read it all yet. It's over 400 pages. But yeah. there were some very interesting, um, very intriguing um, pieces of uh, stories or, or, or analysis going on in this book. So the, I love the book because I can. I don't have to read it from the first to the last page. I can browse. I love books where yes. I can browse yes. and read excerpts. Now, do you have a website? Um, I do. It's uh, shakespearesuppressed.com. Okay, that's great because your name isn't that easy to understand. Let's see. There you have it. New breakthrough research. So what else are you a part of? You say you were a part of this uh, board. Yeah, the, the Shakespeare Authorship Coalition, yeah. and and I've given a lot of talks for the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship dot mm. org. Mm. <laughs> so I'd encourage your listeners to go there too. Mm-hmm. I encourage you to 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 read the Declaration of Reasonable Doubt on the Doubt About Will dot yeah. org website and, and sign it. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And, can can uh, laymen sign it? I thought it was just yeah, professionals. Everybody. Everybody. Ah. Yeah. And also there's. Uh, the De Vere Society in England. Um, they have a great website. And um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot going on. There seems to you, you have edited a, a book, at least, if not authored it, called Letters and Poems of Edward Earl of Oxford. Yes, yes, I did that in 1998, right? Mm. Still have a few copies, so. Mm. So you started with that, and then you took on the main thing itself. Yeah, I got into it because I really got fed up when I saw a Shakespeare professor or well-known one, you know, really put down the authorship question on live television. So Mm. I thought, what gives him such confidence in his man? And so I I really hunkered down and looked into everything about the Stratford man. And and then that's when I saw immediately that all the evidence is posthumous, so they their case is very weak, and and so it kind of led me to to going into other aspects of the authorship too. Right, right. I see you have written a bunch of articles. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. I, I think we'll call it a day then for now. This is just a, a chapter in the long, long, big story. But uh, it's good to have uh, heard the Oxford case. I always knew that uh, the Oxford case was based on analysis of the man and his life compared to was featured in the Shakespearean works. But I, I'm glad to hear that there's also, you know, that writings of De Vere has survived so that you have something more tangible too. To yes, and we, we have many of his letters have mm. survived. 
connect to. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so this is very interesting. Uh, by the way, if you want to learn about uh, this project thing, uh, it would be good for some. Uh, you you seem like a solid, educated Oxfordian. Thank you. I think some Oxfordian sooner or later should look into that because yeah. then we can see if there's room for his contribution. Because unless you have someone rooting for being highly motivated for placing. Oxford. I suspect some Baconians are a little wary of that because they feel he may have sucked up all the air in the room, right? Mm, right. Uh, of course, we have to assume that most researchers are about the, about the case, not about their pet peeves or holy cows, right? But people are people. Right. <laughs> so if some uh, Oxfordian learned properly about the some of the great research in the uh, group theory, because the group theory isn't just a group theory. There's several uh, schools there. And the one I'm favoring is pretty, pretty obscure, though, but uh, has a lot going for it. It's connected to the Rosicrucians, to Oak Island, and it drags in all sorts of people in the sphere of Oxford. And then I think it's only fair that someone who knows Oxford also... um, you know, takes a look at it. Who knows? Maybe you can discover some connections with Oxford because I find it highly suspicious that he is the, he's so absent in, in, in this, in terms of evidence that it speaks volumes, if you see what I mean. Right. Yes. Right. Yes. So even, even more peripheral people are, are dragged into it. But where's Oxford in all of this? Uh, I, I, because people he knew were involved. So, and, and you said that he, can you say some other names he was frequenting that are, maybe I can recognize them, that were big at the time in the playwright scene? Um, well, I'd say the biggest was uh, John Lilly and Anthony Mundy. Yeah. Those were two playwrights. Mm. Um, but he also, he also knew Edmund Spencer. Ah, Spencer is involved. Yep. Yeah. Spencer is involved in his group thing. Yeah. Yeah, in, in Spencer's Fairy Queen, he, he dedicated it to Oxford as well as many others, but Oxford is one of them. Ah, interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, I'll send you some links um, to Petter Amundsen's work. Okay. He's a fellow Norwegian. I don't know if you heard about him. No, I haven't. Mm. Petter Amundsen, um, uh, he came into this by... What was his approach? Was it Oak Island? But then he he started to apply steganographic codes, which Bacon and John Dee were big on. Mm. And what popped up was amazing. And you can see them for yourself. Yeah, you can see them. I would like to see one of those videos. Yeah, Yeah, so he made, uh, or someone else made uh, four episodes for Norwegian State TV. Uh, and then uh, there's been two documentary movies. And one of uh, Norway's most famous authors wrote a book to, uh, about this. Called, oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Called, uh, what did he call the book? Uh, the Organist. Organist. Oh. Yeah, but uh, uh, that's also an allusion to Bacon. Huh. But uh, Peter Amundsen plays organ. That's why he knows codes, because you know Johann Sebastian Bach, right? Yeah. Bach based his music on this code thing, and and oh no, oh. yes, Bach, Bach was a genius, just like Shakespeare, and uh, Peter Amundsen is also a Freemason. So he he started to crack these codes uh, one by one because uh, it's like a treasure map thing. One code leads to another, and he started out like a Baconian, but then he realized, oh my God, this is bigger than bacon, 
And so now uh, other people are involved too, like Neville I mentioned and others, mm. Ben Johnson, yeah. And I asked him once, because I've had him on, I know him, I asked him one, what about De Vere? Everybody talks about De Vere. Why not De Vere? Yeah, I would love to include De Vere. I'm just waiting to find some references. <laughs> That's the problem. Well. So, But I think contextually speaking, like when you say he knew Lily, he knew Spencer, he knew, who was the others? He knew Sydney? Yes, he knew Sydney, yeah. Yeah. He was... He had a quarrel with him on the tennis court. <laughs> right. It was he was that close, right? Yeah. And we know his son knew uh, Neville because Neville was a junior in all this. Mm. Neville wasn't like, a, he was younger than the others, etc. So then we see here that, yeah, this project, this network, whatever you want to call it, which, by the way, was inspired by something similar in France. I just forgot what it was called. Um, like... 20, 30 years before. And that was also, that also had a political broadside. Hmm. Uh, they referred to it as the new, what was it, the new installation or something? Hmm. The Bacon, pro uh, the, the Shakespeare project called the new installation. Yeah. You learn about it. It's very entertaining, if nothing else. And uh, hmm. I think as a Oxford scholar, you should also know what's going on in the non-Stratfordian scene, yes, right? you're right, yes. So I'll send you these links. Do it, it doesn't threaten the Oxford thing at all. If anything, it just expands it. Okay. Uh, I mean, nothing would be better than understanding that the Shakespeare project was a part of a larger project. Right. I, I'm, not, I'm not against that idea. <laughs> yeah, and that can go to explain also the extreme cloak and dagger aspect to it. Because I think, despite the times they lived in, I think it's a little overkill, you know? Mm. I th I, there are many arguments, of course, but it's such, I don't know, there's something smells here. Something is rotten in the state of Denmark, to put it like that. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. So enjoy those when I send it to you together thank with the first you. link. I, I will. And thank you for having me on. And so it was a real honor. And you've had some great guests in the past. So glad we can. And more will come. More will come. Oh, watch the spot. Anyway, oh. it's an ongoing story. People should watch this spot. Uh, I think there will be, you say, new breakthrough research. But I, I feel like that's. You know, every few years there's new breakthrough research. Yeah. <laughs> it's the gift that keeps on giving, isn't it? It is. It is. Okay, Catherine, so are you. Okay, wonderful. Thank you a lot for, for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Al. It was a pleasure. Mm. Ditto. And that's our show today. Now, if you have listened through the entire thing, I can only presume this is your cup of tea. And in that case, I can please you with the good news that this is just the first episode in a long series we're planning. It's actually a sub-series from the big arc that we call from Solomon's Temple to Arcadia, which is about this, well, I suppose the word conspiracy should cover it. It's not necessarily sinister, not at all, maybe subversive, maybe dissident to the powers that was and maybe still is. But this sub-theme will explore closer the authorship of Shakespeare, of the Shakespearean place, since they are so important in the 
whole saga uh, closely related to the Rosicrucian project, which uh, again is closely related to bacon. And as I said to Catherine, and, and I couldn't help myself, I imposed my own uh, pet uh, approach about the group theory that will be explored too in the future. But look, at the end of the day, we don't know. It's like any conspiracy. Let's say, for example, 9-11 or JFK or whatever. I mean, there are many potential culprits, but we can know that the patsies are not it. And so the same will be here, that there will be many potential solutions to, to the mystery. Um, and since I'm into racing uh, like-minded, meaning independent thinkers... All I can do is present the material to you in, in, in conversation with experts and you make your mind up. And I suspect that for every episode you hear, you will agree with, yeah, today it's, yeah, it was Devere. Next time we say, oh, yes, it was Sydney. <laughs> After that, we say, yes, it was Bacon. No, let's listen to all of them and then we make our minds up. And um, although Catherine covered Devere today, we will actually return to Devere. As I said in the introduction, I discovered there are codes associated with him too. And since we have covered codes with Bacon already, it's only fair that we have another show devoted to Devere and explore the codes leading to him. And uh, we'll have yet another show with codes uh, where we explore those leading to Henry Neville. But in the series of the authorship, I have a plan to introduce, uh, I've actually already booked someone who can make the case for Sydney and Bacon and Neville. And I also aim to cover Marlowe, Stanley, Greville, North and the group theory or theories. Um, so I hope to, to get on some main authors behind books covering that. And at the end of the line, we'll see who is, has the most convincing arguments. And uh, um, who knows, maybe we will change our mind about that. And I'll even have back uh, some updates from um, Paul Lappin, who is coming at this from a completely other, different angle. Uh, about these book printer plates that involve the exact same players that is involved in the Shakespeare and even the Rosicrucian, uh, let's call it project for a lack of a better word. And I, I believe his new findings will cast even more lights on these mysteries. Now, let me say another thing. I, I was kind of making a fool of myself commenting upon San Francisco in the... <laughs> In the, in the beginning of my talk with Catherine, uh, this was before I learned about all the horrors going on over there now. So actually, it's 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 the perfect Barbary place. <laughs> my mind was yeah, I'm from the other side of the pond, so my insight into uh, that area is limited. Uh, I had Scott McKenzie's uh, conjurations in the back of my head. So that's that. Um, I will read to you some quotes from the Shakespearean um, place. Um, just as a broadside against the Stratford man. For example, uh, he wrote... 
neither a borrower nor a lender be. Doesn't exactly jive with what we've learned about the Stratford shock spare, huh? And tis not enough to help the feeble up, but to support them after. Again, he did a complete opposite than what was written here. And also, sweet mercy is nobility's true badge. Doesn't jive. Uh, this was just random picks. I mean, if you go through the entire corpus, <laughs> the Shakespearean plays debunk everything that the man is. The man will Shakespeare. Uh, another place it says, Be not afraid of greatness. Some are born great, some achieve greatness, and others have greatness thrust upon them. That, I think, fits, the latter fits with Will Shakespeare. Okay, the bells are chiming, and I'm out of here. Thanks to your support, thanks to my team, I've been your host, Al, appropriately leaving you with words of De Vere. So I, the pleasant grape, have pulled from the vine, and yet I language in great thirst, while others drink the wine. Be seeing you. Number one.